looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Rongle, episode 488's podcast for hardcore cinephiles, where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we've got another one of our Western roundups with artist David Lambert, easily the biggest Western fan I've ever met in all my days. And today we've got a kind of a special theme in store for you, but I'm going to turn the show over to Mr. Lambert because he's going to be able to explain it much better than I, but David, welcome back to Wrong Reel. Ah, yes. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it sounds like you got your beer and your energy drink ready to go, and you're ready to you're ready to throw down, skin. Like, what, what are some expressions or figures of speech they use when they're about to draw their weapons? Like, like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we went with Tombstone, yes. What is it? Skin that smoke wagon? Or yeah, something skin like that, that smoke wagon. Yeah, it gets it gets yeah. a little gets a little sexual during that particular scene. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like they're uh, performing a circumcision or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Um, so I guess what we're going to do today is, uh, I guess you would call them, um, swan song Westerns maybe. I mean, that sounds a little soft, but, uh, basically we're going to, we're going to tackle, um, ride the high country, the shootest and unforgiven, uh, essentially the, the last Westerns of, uh, these great Western stars, obviously Clint Eastwood is still with us, but, it seems like it, I don't really see him making another Western after Unforgiven. So we're going to touch upon, you know, it's uh, Ride the High Country is Randolph Scott's last Western. Joel McRae did a few more movies, but it, he basically, I think he kind of wanted it to be his swan song too. The Shootist is uh, John Wayne's last Western. And as of now, Unforgiven is Clint Eastwood's last Western. Yeah, I mean, Clint Eastwood's 89, and he's got a new movie coming out in a couple weeks that is all about like a, a fake news kind of scandal. But it seems like he's very content these days to dwell in the world of 
feature film adaptations of historical events and whether it's saving a train from bad guys or whether that you know like a, an old like drug meal whatever the case might be but almost all of his movies these days are based on something ripped from the headlines yeah yeah so yeah i i just don't even see a scenario where and i don't think he would want to you know uh, unforgiven is such a lauded film that i just don't i don't see i don't see him going back to the western so um yeah but, unless you know, like you know like s craig zoller or or andrew dominic or like some like really cool filmmaker came along and basically like showed up at his doorstep and just like kneeled before him like in supplication like almost like a samurai begging entry into some ancient like uh, dojo and sat there for months in the rain begging and pleading for clint to make like one final appearance but even then it might not work i mean clint i feel like he's what else is there to say about the wedding, about the, the Western that he has not already said in the films he made with Sergio Leone or the films that he directed himself? Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so we'll touch upon those. Uh, we'll talk about how um, uh, each one kind of inspired the, the, the next one because I know that Ride the High Country was influential on uh, Glendon Swarthout who, uh, who wrote the novel The Shootist. Um, and I know that the novel The Shootist was influential to David Webb Peebles, who wrote uh, the script for Unforgiven, which was originally called The Cut Whore Killings, which I think is a much better title. But <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I can get why they would choose to steal their title from a different a different movie. But yeah, it's just one of those things where uh, I, I, anytime someone has the option to lean into something with a little bit more kind of juicy, visceral detail, I'm always in favor of that. But a lot of times people, they chicken out at the last minute. But who knows, maybe that name change is what won Clint the Oscar. Well, before we get into all these kick-ass flicks and all these great scripts and great books, perhaps catch people up on what you've been working on with your own art, your own movie watching, your own reading. Cause it seems like, uh, you, you lead an interesting life out there out West, quite different from the life that I, uh, that I live here in dreary old Manhattan. Oh, is it really that dreary? Uh, it's, it's, it's a line from Caddyshack that I've always loved. And it's like, you know, oh, okay. like her, her, my sister has sent us here to for the summer. And like that, the, I guess the doctor is like, Oh, well tell us, give us the latest from dreary old Manhattan. But you know, I've always, uh, I've always loved that little line. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've still been doing the art. I've slowed down a little bit. Uh, my workspace where I usually do my artwork is uh, there's a lot of construction and stuff going on around there now. So um, I've kind of had to slow down with how productive I've been in the past. But then I've just been focusing on trying to get, um, you know, my back catalog of work sold. So Gotcha. <laughs> fair enough. So, yeah, focusing on that but uh well every once in a while i take a peek at your page on facebook and people don't know david lambert has this unique skill of convincing beautiful women to take off all their clothes and pose for his art and if you if you like seeing the human form and all of its glory definitely check out his page on facebook or or his uh, or his profile on instagram uh yeah yeah i i usually update the instagram a little bit more than the than the facebook and then i'm on tw because of you i've been a little bit more active on twitter so i've noticed yeah absolutely and i always try to when i see you posting some of your more um you know tantalizing titillating art i always try to post it on my savage comics account which is my erotic art twitter profile that's almost got seventeen thousand subscribers at this point so some people clearly like the like that profile <laughs> 
Oh, oh yeah. I I don't know if I follow that. You'll have to remind me to to look, make sure I'm following. Yeah, that page the only stuff like I post there is like uh, like really interesting erotic art that I found like in comics or like old Playboy pinups or clips from movies. But it's like every once in a while I post some of that stuff on uh, my Twitter profile. But I didn't want my main profile to just be nothing but pure carnality day in and day out. So I try to keep those worlds a little separate. But with very little effort, I've been able to accumulate a lot of subscribers over there. Yeah, you know, it yeah, it does help. It does help. Uh uh yeah, I, I should well, I, I have a different uh profile too for more of the uh I don't know, classier work that I do. Gotcha. But uh, yeah, I should I should have different accounts, uh uh more more different accounts cuz it is probably kind of weird to have like these beautiful naked women and then like, you know, uh, a tribute to Michael J. Pollard. Yeah, 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 exactly. Be like, huh? What? You're sending me mixed signals, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, because like, oh, a new a new uh, tweet from uh, David Lambert. Art. Right, let me check what that is. And it's a picture of Michael J. Pollard. Yeah, yeah that's a little bit of a bait and switch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, apart from the, uh, the Westerns that we're discussing today, have you seen anything cool or read anything cool recently? Because while I was getting prepared, I had so much fun reading The Shootist that I immediately started looking up lists of people's uh, favorite Westerns, and I ended up ordering the novel of Shane, which seems to be universally agreed upon as one of the stronger Western novels of the 21st, of the 20th century. But have you been dabbling with any other interesting Western lore as of late? Uh, yeah, I've actually been, uh, because I've not been doing as much art, I've been doing a lot more reading. So, uh, I read, uh, and I might talk about it a little bit, but I read the sequel to The Shootist, which was written by uh, Miles Swarthout, which was Glendon's son who wrote the screenplay for the movie. Uh, it's called The Last Shootist, and it's about uh, Gillum Rogers, you know, the kid from mm-hmm. The Shootist. Um, it's not up to par with The Shootist. <laughs> I mean, The Shootist, well, I mean, we'll get to this in a bit, but for a lot of people, it's one of a handful of the great Western Western novels of the 20th century. And it seems like if, whichever ones you like from the days of like Louis L'Amour or Zane Grey up to like the assassination of Jesse James by the coward uh, Robert Ford, like, no matter which list you find, the shootest is going to be on it. Yeah, yeah. What are your favorite Westerns by um, Elmore Leonard? Because I read – this is kind of like a Western in Cuba, but I read um, Cuba Libre earlier this year – and it's late 19th century, so it kind of feels like a Western, but obviously you're dealing with war instead of the Wild West. But after reading that, I was like, oh, my fucking God, I've got to read some more Elmore Leonard Westerns. You know, I, I have not read that one, but I did read the Cullen Brothers adaptation of it. They, oh, they cool. were going to adapt it. Yeah, so there is a script that online. That my heart that that movie hasn't been made. Yeah, yeah. So – I'm sure it's probably pretty close to the to the Elmer Leonard book, but I, I'm not sure. But it's funny you mentioned that I did just read uh, Valdez is coming, which is uh, which is a, you know it's a that's a really good book. The movie doesn't quite work, but it's really it's it's actually really close to the book, but it kind of doesn't work because Burt Lancaster is weird as a Mexican. He's got this weird makeup on his face, and uh, I don't know. Have you seen Valdez is coming? I. Is that a Robert Aldrich film? Who made that? No, it's. Uh, no, he, that was uh, that was um. Uh, what the hell is it? What, that was, was that Vera Cruz that Robert Aldrich made? Um. Yeah, he did Vera Cruz, and then he also did Apache. Uh, Ozana's Raid. Yeah, Ozana's right? Raid. Okay, so yeah, I have not seen Valdez is coming. I don't think. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's you know, Burt Lancaster plays a Mexican. It was shot in Spain. 
Um, and they've got this other guy who's supposed to be a Mexican and he's got blue eyes and it's brown, <laughs> brown face makeup. And he's got, he's got puffy, he's balding, but he's got puffy side hair, like Larry fine of the three stooges. Gotcha. So it's just really weird. Um, and the movie just doesn't quite, it's very close to the book, but I think Elmore Leonard, you have to, uh, when you adapt him, I think you have to kind of get the spirit of it as opposed to trying to do it, you know, piece by piece. But, um, ombre, is good by him and uh what and other of course, like 310 to yuma which i've seen both movies but i've never read the short story that it's based on yeah i haven't read the short story i like i like the first 310 to yuma i'm i'm not a fan of the of the remake so. fair enough yeah my whole family was required to go see it because one of the authors and my, my brother's a publisher one of his authors derek haas wrote the screenplay adaptation for 310 to Yuma. And so our whole family was like, we have to support the screenwriter because that indirectly supports his <laughs> novel that he wrote for my brother. It was like, it was a, it was a very indirect route of supporting my brother, oh. but the whole family <laughs> went as a group to indirectly by like a few pieces removed, support my brother by somehow by seeing the movie. <laughs> well, I'll see any shitty Western. Like I, I, I always try to see him in the theater just to support Westerns being made, even if they're not great. So, you know, I think I was one of the only people to see like, Jane got a gun <laughs> in the theater. So, Although so, there's yeah. all, there are all these rumors floating around that Tarantino might dabble with a like a perhaps a like a miniseries of a western since he had so much fun creating the fake miniseries for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I would kill to see Tarantino do like just like a six episode miniseries for HBO or someone like that. I feel like the time is ripe for him to do something like that. And obviously, every movie he the last three movies he's made have all been either directly tied into the Western or indirectly tied into the Western. Clearly he's got Westerns on the brain. So I'd love to see him continue to dabble in that world. Yeah. Yeah. It, it would also be cool to just to see him working in short form, like a 30 minute, you know what I mean? Trying to, um, because, uh, I love Tarantino, but he can, you know, he gets indulgent and that's part of the reason <laughs> yeah. I like him, but it would be interesting to see him. I mean, I guess the whole idea of him doing a 30 minute TV Western based off of, once upon a time in Hollywood is the height of indulgence anyway. Yeah. But, <laughs> but a 30 cool minute form, I mean, he's, I love Tarantino, but he definitely is prone to let the cameras roll when he thinks his actors are being adorable. And I'm like, I mean, these are, these are great, but maybe they could be just special scenes like on a DVD or a Blu-ray release. Like they don't necessarily need to be part of the final cut, but you can, especially like with hateful eight, I think it was chapter oh, yeah. four in it when they showed what happened prior to everybody arriving. I was like, wow, you could take this whole section out, make the movie like a half hour shorter, much more commercially viable, and you wouldn't lose anything in terms of plot. And it, it, it all just felt like Tarantino having a play date with all of his friends and having fun, but it wasn't necessarily the world's most rigorous filmmaking. Yeah, hateful eight is one of my least favorite of his movies, uh, even though it's a Western, I, I, I thought it was, it's the one I've yeah. seen the least. I saw it once at the New York premiere and I was really excited. And then I saw the 70 millimeter play again at another theater and I haven't touched it since then, which says a lot because usually anytime Tarantino makes a movie, it doesn't matter if it's good or good, bad, mediocre, or whatever. I end up just feasting on it repeatedly. And to also speaking of which today, once upon a time in Hollywood is now available online. So people should hunt that down, but maybe it's time to start switching gears into yet another master of the western form one of my all-time favorite filmmakers sam peckinpah with his first real clearly defined obvious masterpiece of his career ride the high country in all the stirring legends of the frontier west there is none as exciting as the reckless saga of the men who pushed the last outposts of civilization across the sierra nevadas 
the men who ride the high country. You add them all up and I'd figure I was owed about all the gold we could carry out of these mountains. Looks like you've got a pretty good claim. <laughs> oh, it's a gold mine, honey. Why don't you come on over and take a look? The lure of gold and the lust for excitement held them together. Two of a kind when danger threatened, but miles apart when tempers blazed. You always fancied yourself faster than me. Draw, you damn tin horn! Everywhere, the wildness of the country seemed to get inside the people themselves. Even hard-bitten adventurers like Randolph Scott and Joel McRae were as rash as the younger generation, represented by two of Hollywood's fastest-rising young stars. When I questioned you about that boy, I should have gone a bit deeper into the subject of character. I came to Corsgold to be married, and that's what I'm going to be, married. Marriott Hartley, refreshingly different, with her red hair and freckles, recklessly pitted one suitor against another. Looks like the girl he's been going down the mountain to see. I'll say one thing, she's sure worth the trip. Looks like a warm one. Ronald Starr is the dynamic tenderfoot who'd rather fight than love. <laughs> Go get him, Tiger. You're doing fine. There were few who could say who was bad and who was good, especially the two tall men who suited their actions to the era in which they lived. I feel like it's one of his most beautiful, like melancholy meditations on the Western. And I feel like it almost feels like Bud Bedeker and Peckinbaugh had butt sex and had a baby that made this movie because it feels, <laughs> it feels like kind of a mix of those two worlds. But I love Ride the High Country, but perhaps the more eloquent way to compliment it, I saw a screening of it where L.Q. Jones was saying that it's the best movie to sit down on a Sunday afternoon and hold your girlfriend's hand and watch a movie. I was like, oh, that's a very sweet way of describing Ride the High Country. But uh, what, what, what are your feelings about this film? Uh, well, I love it. Um, I don't, uh, you know, I don't know how many people are watching this with their girlfriend though, to be, <laughs> to well, be if you're honest. Well, if you're LQ Jones, you're like, well, wait an hour and I'm going to, I'm going to show up. So then you got, you got a reason to, to make the pitch. But I have met LQ Jones before and I, and I told him I'm a big fan of your work. And he, he said, well, you don't have very good taste, but that's okay. <laughs> so, ah, <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, he's in Pat Gary, Billy, the kid, he's in fucking the wild bunch. He's in like casino and he pops up all over the place. So he, I think he, oh, sh yeah. he shows up in cool things. And 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 uh, a boy and his dog, which he directed. So. Oh fuck yeah! Totally forgot about that. Um, but yeah, ride the high country. Uh, yeah, it's a great movie. Uh, you really it separates itself from Peckinpah's other work because there is a, there's a pervasive feeling of goodness. There's a character who is good, <laughs> who you know, and. Uh, 
it's like, not that he it's like enjoy it while it lasts because you're never going to see one of these characters again in any of Peckham Bell's movies. <laughs> yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. So, uh, and and you know, and what's interesting about it is that uh, um, everyone that you know, like Peckinpah's sister and uh, and uh, other people that had known his father. I guess his father had recently died when when he made it, and and they all think that the character of uh, Steve Judd, played by Joel McRae, uh, is basically his father. And so uh, it kind of, you know, his his flaw is that maybe to an extent his rigidness. But other than that, it's the it is the last time you're going to see just a really good guy <laughs> leading a peck and paw movie. Um, so, yeah, um, I guess the, with the history of it is um, the producer, Richard Lyons, he had wanted a script and he talked to um, what is this? William C. Roberts. And, um, or is it Robert Williams or Robert S. Williams? It's weird because William C. Roberts, I think, uh, was involved with the script, but then when you actually find the script online, it will say, uh, as one of the writers, Robert S. Williams. So, <laughs> but I don't know what he did with the script. So anyway, uh, but so William S. Roberts was the, was the writer of, uh, the Magnificent Seven and, uh, and some other Westerns, some other things. And, um, he had his friend N.B. Stone Jr. Um, he he basically gave him the job because he he'd remembered that he was a good writer and everything. And so, so Richard Lyons hired N.B. Stone Jr. to write the script. And uh, what he didn't know is that N.B. Stone Jr. was an alcoholic and agoraphobic, and he wouldn't leave his apartment, <laughs> and he was just out of his mind. <laughs> so he ended up turning in this. Uh, this draft of the script and it was, uh, terrible apparently, uh, just, just horrible. And so, uh, Richard Lyons gave it to, to William S. Roberts said, this is horrible. And, and, and uh, Roberts read it and was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> and so he basically did a, a page one rewrite. Uh, and that's when the movie was called guns in the afternoon, which it's still called in uh, Europe. Okay. So, so, um, so anyway, he so he so he writes the script, and then they uh, they find Peckinpah, who had uh, he'd made the Deadly Companions, but he had absolutely no creative control on that one, and it's not a very good movie. Yeah, and that was it's, his- the, it's like one of those movies that most Peckinpah fans kind of pretend like it doesn't exist, and if they want to see early Peckinpah, they much prefer to watch The Rifleman, which is a fantastic show where he directed a lot of the episodes, and it's damn good TV. I mean, it's it's the kind of show we would like to see Tarantino do if he ever did a black and white western TV show. Yeah, even more than that is uh, his show, The Westerner. And I don't know if you've ever been able to catch any episodes of that. I've not. I've seen a few episodes of The Rifleman because they showed him at the Egyptian in L.A. prior to – I can't remember what the fuck I was there for. I was there to see a Peckinpah movie, but I can't remember which, which one. But I remember that was the first time I got exposed to The Rifleman up on the big screen, and it was just gorgeous. Oh, yeah. And speaking of The, the Rifleman with a Peckinpah connection, I once read a draft of a Rifleman film, which wasn't made – written by uh, Waylon Green, who wrote The Wild Bunch. <laughs> and it was a very weird script because it had kind of the the old-timey, all-shucks feel of a Rifleman episode, but then, like, extreme violence. It was strange. Really, really weird mix. But anyway, the, the Westerner was really where Peckinpah started finding his voice. It was, it was uh, very different from every Western that was on TV at the time. Uh, more realistic with downbeat endings and, you know, it, it really established, uh, 
who Peck and Paul was. And so after screening some of some of those episodes, Richard Lyons decided to hire Peck and Paul to, to direct. Uh, so, um, so anyway, yeah, so, so, uh, Peckinpah read the script and he loved it. Uh, but he still rewrote it. I guess, uh, apparently he did a, like a page one dialogue rewrite. He retained the structure of the script, but one of the changes that he made was that, um, in the original script, the Randolph Scott character, who is the, who's the guy who, um, is more of a shady character who wants to rob this, uh, you know, this uh, payroll wagon coming from the from the mining town. Um, his character was the one that died uh, in the original script, and Pegapod decided to change that so that the more upright, rigid, good guy is the one who dies, and through that, that was a more- that was a very good call on Pegapod's part. <laughs> Yeah, so the more shady guy gets his redemption through the death of the more upright. I mean, I, I almost start weeping when you get to the end when Randolph Scott says, like, oh, I'm going to finish the job just the way you would have. And I was like, oh, I, I, I just start falling to pieces. It's incredibly moving stuff seeing his, redempt, his redemptive arc. And then, of course, you give Joel McRae the death scene of all death scenes. It, it's, it, it's, it, all the poetry comes out because of that switch. Yeah, and uh, and apparently Peckinpah's sister said that there is a there's a photo of uh, of their father on his last hunting trip before he died, and those mountains are up there in the background. So it's almost like a very similar composition uh, that that I guess Peckinpah was uh, was uh, trying to evoke. I mean, apparently that line "I just want to enter my house justified" is something that his dad used to say all the time. It's a Bible reference that he used to say when they were growing up. But yeah, I mean Peckinpah, from what I've read had a really, I guess, not conflicted relationship with this past, but it was a strange upbringing where he seems to have a lot of moral shortcomings that perhaps his father would have disapproved of. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, he has a code, <laughs> but he's also a drunk, and he's horrible to people, and he fires people like on a whim. And it seems like, in a weird way, he respects and admires his father so much but he spent so much of his life turning himself into some kind of monster as like a direct result of this background that he came from where they ha- almost had kind of like a wild west upbringing so it's a, it's interesting seeing who Peckinpah became versus where he came from yeah you know people that that knew him said that he was a very sensitive guy and he had the soul of a poet and he hated that about himself <laughs> you know and so so yeah, he did get into you know al- you know a lot of alcohol, uh, cocaine later, horror, booger all the sugar. Time. Yeah, the, I mean he's it's bad enough to be a drunk, but once apparently once the booger sugar got in and on and on the mix, it was just it was, he started aging in dog years before people's eyes. Yeah, yeah, and then you get you know stuff like the killer elite and stuff. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but uh, although even so, at his worst, like Osterman Weekend, which is a movie that you almost can't even tell it's a Sam Peckinpah movie. I still kind of, in, in a weird way, enjoy it. Like, I enjoy bad Sam Peckinpah movies. I enjoy Convoy, and uh, I enjoy all these movies that everybody likes to shit on, but even his after he's completely disintegrated, I still find things to enjoy. But Ride the High Country is obviously, it's in the, the, it's in the first tier of, of great works. Yeah, and, you know, and it's the one that I think a lot of the... The old timers, I think this is like their this is their favorite Peck and Paw movie because it it does still it's 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 an interesting movie to watch because the because there there are there are great like 
uh, touches near the beginning, uh, Peckinpah-esque touches and the way that he establishes things, like, you know, when Joel McRae is, is reading the contract and he goes into the restroom and, and he flushes the toilet and you have this nice symbolism of where his life is at, you know, without without being too um, on the nose. So there are those cool, interesting touches when he almost gets hit by the car and then that later. Yeah, everybody's like, get out of the way, old man. You're in the way. And it's like, a, it's, this is the theme that will dominate Peckinpah's career the rest of his life about these men who have outlived their times. And it seems like no matter what era the movies take place, whether it's 1880 or 1913, it's like, oh, these are old timers and they've outlived their usefulness. And it's like, you know, modernity is going to kind of run them into the pavement. But, you know, the, the Wapunch takes place decades later, but it has a lot of the same themes. Yeah. Well, and then even if you take that, uh, you know, that scene where he almost gets hit by the car, and then once you get to uh, the Ballad of Cable Hogue, which is probably the other the other one of Peckinpah's work that is the most, like, sensitive and, and you know, beautiful and, and nice, has a nice spirit to it. But anyway, his character gets hit by a car, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so, and then ends up dying, so... So you do see the genesis of a lot of his themes throughout the movie. I mean, even Convoy, they're like, there aren't a lot of us left. I'm like, this is like 1980. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) But he's still digging, uh, returning to that well of ideas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it just, yeah, it was, uh, you know, and and that was just a thing because, um, and this one is, is in many ways, his most autobiographical in, in terms of his life before, um, making movies because it is set in an area where he used to live and there was a real place called Corskull, the, the mining town that they go to. And, uh, it is right next to Peckinpah mountain. So, uh, in Peckinpah, his family had, you know, they had their own mountain, uh, up in that area of California. So a lot of the things, the, the, the horse racing, the camel is something that Peckinpah had seen as a kid. Um, and, uh, a lot of that stuff is coming directly from his own life. But when you watch the, the movie, it starts in a way that is more akin to, um, you know, a, a, a more standard Western of the time. It really well made, but more standard. But then once you get to when, – when, when you start getting towards the end and you meet the Hammond brothers <laughs> – and you get to Coarse Gold and you get to the whorehouse and stuff, you start to see that like peck and paw perversity uh, and irony and all that stuff. Yeah, it's like the least that, romantic so. wedding night in movie history where this poor girl just wants to get away from her crazy fucking hyper-religious father, marries into this clan of mining brothers, and clearly the brothers have this idea that they're all going to participate in the wedding night one, one way or another, and it just it gets so dark and so depraved, and yeah, this town, you can just see it's written all over the girl's face where she's just like this dawning horror and realization that she has fled from one horrible situation into yet another. Yeah, and there's a, there's a weird sort of uh, theme of, of just an incestuousness. Uh, not only with the brothers, but with her own father. Oh, he smacks the shit out of her when she suggests that perhaps his interest in her might be more than your typical father-daughter kind of uh, dynamic. Yeah, and, and, you know, R.G. Armstrong playing, uh, you know, the first of many religious psychopaths for uh, for Peckinpah. 
you know, it kind of reaches its apex in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, but he <laughs> in the Major Dundee too. But what's interesting is, and I don't know if anyone ever really mentions this, but is what do you think? Is it hinted that the father killed the mother? Because when you read the headstone, I didn't write it down, which I should have, but it says something. It has a, a, a Bible verse talking about like. I'm, you know, jealous and uh, whores will die or, you know, it's a, it's not a nice headstone. Uh, I mean, given the evidence that we have in the movie, it wouldn't surprise me in the least if he decided that she was too sinful or perhaps it might, once again, this is pure speculation, or perhaps his dawning lust for his daughter might have even led to that. But given what we've seen it's not hard to imagine that that might be the case because obviously he's one of those guys where, I mean, as she says later on, Elsa's character says, my father says there's only right and wrong, good and evil, nothing in between. It isn't that simple, is it? And Steve tells him, no, it, no, it isn't. It should be, but it isn't. It's a really cool scene. But I mean, obviously he thinks everybody on the planet is nothing but sin and wickedness and not good enough for his daughter. And if, if, the, if the mother had any moral shortcomings of any kind, I wouldn't put it past him at all, but I can't, I guess that's part of the fun of this movie is that there's a lot of depth it, to sink yeah, your teeth it, into. It's, it's just a quick thing, but if you read that headstone, it's just so, it's such a weird thing to put, <laughs> put on someone's headstone. So there's the possibility that, that maybe she was just unfaithful and then she died with other circumstances and he was just like, yeah, this was God punishing you or something to that effect. But it's definitely in there that, he, it's on the headstone. Somehow she was unfaithful, or he thought she was, and he thinks that she died because of that. Whether yeah. or not he did it, or you know, natural causes, or something else. But I guess this is probably Peckham's most interesting essay on religion and the religion he was raised uh, as a part of. Because I love the scene where you have the dueling Bible verses, where Steve obviously is religious but not an, an ideologue or a, a fundamentalist. And you've got the warring Bible quotes going back and forth. And that I found to be particularly fascinating. You just, you just don't see scenes like that in movies ever where you can, like today's Hollywood would just oversimplify things and say, oh, well, everybody's religious. They're all fundamentalists. They're all psycho, blah, blah, blah. But here you have two very different types of Christianity having like a battle of ideas right there at the dinner table. I, I thought that was great. But then one of the, the best scenes, where you have the marriage that is a, it's a civil ceremony, not a religious ceremony, which that guy, um, Jerry Harvey from Z Channel, ended up using in his actual oh, yeah. wedding. He, he used the. <laughs> I was going to bring that up. Yeah. yeah it's like, and I'm not a man of the cloth, and this is a, not a religious ceremony. It's a civil marriage, but nonetheless, it should be entered into unadvisedly, but reverently and soberly. I mean, it's this brilliant long passage. And granted, he's a stuttering, doddering old drunken fool, but it's like a rare moment of poetry and eloquence from this guy. And it, uh, I found that scene to be particularly powerful. Yeah, and and of course Edgar Buchanan is just great, hilarious in it. Um, but you know, for people that know Jerry Harvey, um, maybe maybe having your wedding vows come from <laughs> come from the uh, marriage in a film <laughs> where it's going to result in gang rape. Not the best start to a relationship. And for the people that do know Jerry Harvey. Uh, was uh, he had started Z Channel and he he had you know he he would always release like director's cuts so he he got the longer cut of Pat Garrett out there the lo the uh, director's cut of the Wild Bunch Once Upon a Time in America um, Heaven's Gate so he was a champion of uh, these auteurs 
but he did end up killing his wife and himself. <laughs> yeah, it's so. <laughs> a tale of darkness and sadness. And that documentary, Z Channel, Magn The Magnificent Obsession, is one of my favorite documentaries about cinephiles and the business of being a cinephile and running a, a channel during the early days of cable. But it is also a tale of sadness and darkness. And he had real demons. And obviously, yeah, the story ended in just a horrible tragedy. Yeah, yeah. But... Um, so yeah, the Hammond brothers, you got Warren Oates, you got John Anderson, James Jury from, uh, the Virginian, um, uh, uh, what is his, uh, is, uh, John Davis Chandler, is it John or Michael Davis Chandler, Chandler, the guy who always looks like he's high out of his fucking mind. John Davis Chandler. Yeah. 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 The, 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 as, as a pack of brothers, man, these are just such inbred shiftlet rednecks like I, I love how lq jones is so confused as to why he might have to move out of his brother's honeymoon room for the night on the night of the honeymoon he's like i don't know he, he gets so like undone and upset but he's kind of like one a uh, kind of an, an idiot man child who doesn't quite get what's going to go down yeah and that dna starts to you know uh it spreads out to the gorch brothers um, the, 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 the way that they, even that line, like start the ball tector and wild bunch, you hear it in this, you hear start the ball when they had their shootout at the end. It's like, start the ball. Like, that's a weird expression. I've only, I only hear it in peck and ball movies. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, um, uh, so yeah. It, it, and then just the idea, I mean, it's a common theme, but like, <laughs> but like this sort of like either gang raped or gang bangs and stuff it's it's like there but then it shows up with like the gorch brothers you know taking whores in tandem you know one after the other uh you have it in straw dogs um you have it in you know the kid and his gang sharing all these whores jumping into bed after you know when he kicks harry dean stanton out yeah, of bed yeah, it's great to have you back then, billy <laughs> and then the two bikers and alfredo garcia so it's a it's a common thing that you might not expect for such a sweet, you know, nice old fashioned Western, but it's there. Um, it's uh, what gives the movie such massive impact. Cause when you have, when you have that darkness beneath this stunningly beautiful exterior, I mean, like it's some, like, when I, th when I think of the wild West, the places where I would like to be, I don't like dust and cactus and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I like mountains and snow and fresh water. Like that's my idea of the, of like the, the, the real West or the West that I like. And I much prefer seeing a movie set in that environment than the idea of like living in just like the squalor of the setting for like Pat Garrett and Billy, the kid where it's just like, Ugh, like who wants to live here? But in this environment, yeah. like, wow, I could fucking move there tomorrow and have a, a smile on my face the rest of my my days yeah and it is uh, one of the things that's interesting about it it's shot by lucian ballard who who would uh, later shoot the wild bunch for uh peck and paw and then i think uh, the getaway and uh it's really the most like panoramic and picturesque of peck and paw's work where you have these nice crane shots and and everything and i think as he went along he became more into assembling everything in the editing room. So lots of coverage, less about sweeping camera movement. Um, yeah, on this, he didn't shoot hardly any coverage, so much so that when he was like the uh, the MGM management, apparently, when they were looking at the dailies, sent him a note and said, and this could be total bullshit, total legend, but they said, who do you think you are, John Ford? Because John Ford was famous for shooting almost no coverage so that because he didn't have control over the final cut, but he would shoot it in a way that you could really only assemble it but so many ways, 
and that way he was able to exercise greater control over the final product. But yeah, if you don't have, if you're, if you're not convinced you have total control in the editing room, shooting in a certain fashion, giving them limited options does help you have a, a larger degree of control. Yeah, you know, I have heard that story too, but I, I'm wondering if it's getting conflated uh, with something else because I know that Richard Lyons, after he saw the movie, wrote Peckinpah a note and said, who do you think you are, John Ford? Ah, gotcha. It could oh, be one of those things where like the legend gets reused depending upon what story people <laughs> want to tell. Yeah, because Peckinpah was still cutting in an interesting way, so much so that the studio editor, I can't remember her name, was like, this is not going to cut together at all. And... um you know, I should have wrote some of these names down, but Peckinpah basically got hired this guy who was known for uh, montage sequences, like these famous, uh, you know, Eisenstein-esque montage sequences, and he cut the movie together, and he specifically cut that end shootout. And so you do start to see Peckinpah's emerging style in that end shootout with the quick cuts, uh, obviously no slow motion yet, but the way it's cut so quickly... I guess they they'd assembled it, and some of the shots were like six frames. The guy had put it together, and he told Peckinpah, like, now, you know, I think that some of these frames might even be too long. Like, some of these shots might be too long. We could probably even trim them even more. And Peckinpah was worried because he thought that they'd already cut it down <laughs> so much. But then he watched it and was like, you know what? You're right. So some of those shots are just, like, just a couple frames and uh, and so Peckinpah, I think, credits that with with like his um, emerging style and how he used editing and montage, uh, not only in action scenes, but eventually started using it, you know, throughout his movies. Um, so it's interesting in that respect. Um, oh, one thing I wanted to mention that you've brought up it many times in the past on the podcast about how. Uh, very rarely do movies show Western guns being fired the correct way in terms of the black powder, which creates so much like a, such a giant cloud that it oftentimes would obscure your ability to see your opponent. But they very deliberately in one scene where you have, um, I believe it's Randolph Scott on horseback, or maybe maybe it's Joel McRae, but anyway, riding no, this. Randolph Scott. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, riding, because Randolph Scott's a, a beautiful rider. I mean, he grew up in horse country in Virginia and knew how to ride really well. But he's hauling ass toward frame and he's firing his Colt revolver as he rides and there's this giant cloud of gun smoke and he rides through it and it's this beautiful little shot but yeah. they very deliberately tried to use the correct black powder in the cartridges to create that effect yeah and and it it, it uh kind of uh is later um you know lucian ballard also shot uh the 1969 version of true grip um and so you see a lot of that and then in that final scene where john wayne is you know got the reins in his teeth or whatever you kind of see that shot kind of gets echoed in in uh, true grit too so um yeah that's a that's an amazing shot and um there is there is a move towards a more authentic feel in this movie especially in those later coarse gold scenes where you know it it looks like something out of mccabe and mrs miller almost you know yeah. the stuff which were apparently no you made. put on some leonard cohen music and it would, it would fit just fine <laughs> yeah exactly um but yeah i guess they stole canvas from mutiny on the bounty to make those tents for out of uh the ship sails and um so yeah you start you're you start to get that just the grittiness of it to where certain parts near the end of the movie are uh indistinguishable from what peg and paul would later do um there are some things 
early in the film that I don't think aged particularly well. The fight in the Chinese restaurant feels off. That know. feels definitely like John Sturgis, kind of like uh, Gunfighter to OK Corral. It feels very mainstream Hollywood and from like a, a, an earlier era, like a, a pre-Anthony Mann era, a pre-Bud Bedecker era. Yeah, the, the set doesn't look great in there, and they're they're falling on tables that are just collapsing and stuff. So it just it it, it you you it looks a little bit more like a TV show yeah, or yeah, generic or Hollywood, and and also just the way that you know um, he is showing violence in a, sort of a whimsical manner that I think he became a little bit more responsible with. I know he still has kind of a goofy uh, bar fight in Junior Bonner, and then he's got a goofy bar fight. Junior Bonner also is much more kind of goofy, innocent movie, but I feel like by the end of Ride the High Country, especially like when L.Q. Jones has his little death scene, like you start getting that savage poetry that you associate with Peckinpah. Yeah, that scene is just like, uh, it's like a Kurosawa scene, you know, with with him just dying there, like thinking about it, and then you got the... You got the wind machines blowing up all the dust around him and everything, and yeah, sorry, and, you get, like you're getting like a little like hint of uh, Slim Pickens and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and things like that. Yeah, and it's just an interesting thing to give to a villain in a movie. And even though these guys are like probably the nastiest villains in in a western up to that point, I mean, and just in terms of you know <laughs> wanting to gang rape someone, but he still he's still has some a modicum of sympathy for them as he's dying the fact that they have a certain uh amount of honor that they're willing to go out and face them head on um i love that yeah two versus three and they're just marching toward each other just blow just mowing each other down it's powerful stuff yeah yeah i love how like within they're grinning at each other and like when they after having had their falling out when they realize that randall scott's basically going to betray his friend but when they start calling each other partner again it's so hard not to just weep with joy when you see these two old timers hollywood legends who've been around since the 30s having that bonding session going into battle potentially one one final time and it's just peckinpah very rarely gives you those heartwarming moments yeah yeah and you really feel it too even earlier when Steve Judd is talking about like how he's gonna, you know, the the young guy Heck Longtree or whatever. When they get into town after he's after he's caught them, um, he's gonna, you know, put in a good word for him so he so they don't go too hard on him. And uh, Ella Newton asks like, well, what about what about Gil? And he goes, no, I'm not gonna do that. And she's like, why? And he's like, because he was my friend. And so that you know that really kind of hits you that he's not gonna help him because he was his friend and how could he d- betray him? And obviously that betrayal amongst friends is something that echoes in almost every Peckinpah movie after it. Yeah. I mean, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid it was impossible without this as like the warm up. Yeah. Or, or, and the wild bunch. Uh, yeah. But like uh, Robert Ryan and William Holden's characters. Yeah. Th- yeah. Just these old pals who have had a, a parting of the ways is definitely something he was fascinated with. Yeah, that or 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 just that betrayal. I mean, even in the getaway, the betrayal of his his supposed the supposed betrayal of his wife, um, and uh, you know, and Killer Elite has that betrayal in it between James Caan and um, Robert Duvall. Yeah, so it's he, not as like beautifully basically. articulated, but it's still there. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, but it just seemed to be seemed to be just this obsession of his. Um, 
and uh, so so yeah, so it's it's interesting because you're you're really seeing you're seeing the blueprint for so many other um, Peck and Paw films. I mean, it's almost all in here. The genesis of almost everything that he's gonna that he's gonna do it is in this movie, and um, and it, and you know it's just really well made. The dialogue is great. Um, it doesn't. It never gets too on the nose. The, the the it's a it's a really brilliantly writ- written script where he's evoking all these themes but but you know outside of a few things where you know the days of the 49er have passed the days of the steady businessman is here some of that stuff is on the nose but not in a grown grown worthy way but um but the dialogue other than that you know them thinking back and recollecting everything and and all that it's done it's done really well there's these really great touches where, you know, about aging, where Randolph Scott, you know, he says, can you untie my wrists? And he says, you know, when he wants to go to sleep, because he's like, I don't sleep so well yeah. anymore. I mean, I'm 43, you know? and I've already noticed that you start to appreciate a good night's sleep more than like a good lay or like a really good like <laughs> night out in the town. Because like whether you're waking up to piss every fucking five seconds or something's hurting or there's noise, but you just start sleeping. It reminds me, I can't remember one of these old like Chuck Jones cartoons from way back when where there's this bear who's trying to sleep. He keeps going, quiet, quiet, quiet. And and this guy (laughs) keeps getting kind of um, like, tricked into making noise that wakes up the bear and so on and so I, I i need to hunt this down but as a little kid i was like oh he's such a grumpy old bear but now i'm like oh I've, i have become the grumpy old bear who i wake up at, like if a moth lands on the window yeah yeah um and there's just that dialogue and and, and that 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 line to me were you know is later echoed in the shootest one when he says you know i'm an old man afraid of the dark you know and it's like yeah like wow that's it's it's uh, it's a really well felt movie, and he he wasn't very old when he made it too, so it's just interesting that he was already tuned into that. Peckham was born uh, old. He was born with this <laughs> darkness in yeah. him. <laughs> and he just, yeah, he's such an unusual character where there's so much about him that you just want to like shake him and say, "Dude, you could have been as great as you are." In addition to being like a director, like on like as successful as like David Lean, if you could have just like kept your demons at bay just a little better, but perhaps part of his inability to keep his demons at bay as part of the romanticism of his movies is that there is, there is a, a romantic tragic quality to his films that is why I find him so compelling and why he remains one of my top favorite filmmakers that I've ever encountered. And perhaps you just can't get to that, those levels of sorrow without that, that self-destructive tendency. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't see someone making something like Pat Garrett or Alfredo Garcia, um, you know, without living it to an extent. I yeah. mean, those movies. So the despair is so naked in those films. You know, um, this one is a little bit, <laughs> a little bit more hopeful. You but. can show this one to your mother, and you you won't you won't get a smack on the wrist. But yeah, but if you show Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, you better duck because people are gonna yeah. get pissed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've got a I've got a few critiques of the movie. Now we've been gushing How over. How dare it. you? You're not allowed to critique. Uh, one, uh, even though I think the theme, like the theme music of it, is great, I think the score is a little overbearing. Um, it tries to really underline every scene, and um, I think it's too much. And I know Peck and Paul was not in charge of that. By that point, he'd been kind of locked out um, of the editing room. 
uh, and I know he was like he was like helping them mix the movie over the phone. You know, they were they, the editors were still trying to do what he wanted, like, but uh, he did not oversee the music, and I don't think he was happy happy with it. And it is one of those things where scenes that could be more powerful, like uh, between uh, Joshua Newton and Ella Newton, is got this you know bum, 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 you know music that you just don't need or like with the where joel mccray um yeah discovers randolph scott's plot you know it, it it has that same sort of thing where we don't need that underlined you know uh so that that's that, that would be one of the things i think that also and it's sort of a common theme that happens with all these movies the the older characters are written really well and really in depth. The younger characters are kind of stupid, kind of annoying. <laughs> Especially the guy. I mean, like, there's little things like, I mean, obviously they're doing this deliberately. We're talking about how he's got a really nice gun, but he doesn't keep it clean. And just showing how, like, the, the youngins have no appreciation for, like, their gear or, like, or nice pieces of equipment, things like that. But I do think that Mariette Hartley plays Elsa Knudsen is one of the rare interesting female characters in Peckham by like you can count on three fingers probably how many interesting characters <laughs> girls get to play in Peckham Ball's movies and no. she, she, she's one of them she and that's a rare thing yeah I, I agree with that and I think that um the younger characters as the as it goes along they grow and you start to really like them but they start out in a way where you're like oh god you know they, yeah, they feel very like leave it to beaver kind of tv-esque yeah, you. Yeah, there is a certain amount of that, and 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 uh, in terms of the casting, obviously Peckinpah did this a lot, which you know uh, he would take the, the the known history of an actor, like he did with Randolph Scott and Joel McRae, and and he basically uses that as backstory, and all these movies do that with the leads, like year year. I mean, with the shootists, they go very obvious. Yeah, but like, <laughs> with, like Randolph Scott, he's coming off of his cycle that he'd just done with Bud Bedecker where they did several of the best westerns ever made, but it was like, boom, 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 they just cranked them all out, and that was all in the years leading up to Ride the High Country, and it's almost like, oh, that 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 is his backstory. Yeah, exactly, and and uh, Peckinpah, obviously, he uses that later with all the character actors that he has in Pat Garrett, uh, you know, William William Holden's kind of checkered past uh, before he did The Wild Bunch, uh, the casting of the rock stars in Pat Garrett. And uh, so he he knows how to take uh, an actor's known history and have that be their backstory. Um, what he did interesting with the with the younger characters is, you know, Marriott Hartley. um had never acted in a film. She was a stage actress and Ron Starr was a used car salesman, I think. And he only ever did <laughs> two movies. Uh, and so he kind of uses that because now he has these fresh faced kids that you've never seen. And, and so he uses that as contrast. So it's really interesting. And like I said, the characters do develop and they become more, uh, more well-rounded, but, but especially Ron Starr at the beginning, he's just kind of this dopey kid. Oh, you're but, like, yeah. When can somebody put a fucking bullet in his head? <laughs> yeah, and and uh, and all these movies have that kind of dopey wannabe gunfighter character. Yeah, you got Ron Howard in The Shootist, and of course you got uh, I'm blanking on the name, but you got the the half blind dumbass and, and Unforgiven. You were shooting all over creation. I love that's when when Morgan Freeman says you were shooting all over creation. It just makes me fucking howl with laughter. I don't know how to say that guy's name, James. But it's spelled like J A I M Z or something, Wolvit or something. Yeah, I I've only ever other seen him in uh, 
Dead Presidents. That's the only other movie I've ever seen him in. Um, but uh, uh, so yeah, so the, the the use of the casting and all that, it's just uh, uh, it becomes one of Peckinpah's um, you know specialties throughout his career. Um, but um, yeah, other than that, I mean, a- after it came out, it was like kind of dumped by the studio as a, on a double bill, but it was really big in Europe and it, it won like the Grand Prix award in Belgium against eight and a half. Yeah. You and know? then also it got re-released and made a lot more money. Like MGM just had no idea what they had on their hands and just said, just kind of fuck, said fuck it and just dumped it, which seems like they're like the, like the the history of movies is littered with these examples where a movie got dumped on the bottom half of a double bill because the studio just had no idea what they had on their hands. Yeah, and apparently the studio head fell asleep during the movie and was like, and woke up during the uh, course gold scenes, and he was like, "This is what this is the worst movie I've ever seen," you know. So, uh, but you know what? What do they know, right? I mean, uh, it's why I find. Peckinpah, as much as I might make fun of sometimes, like how he seemed to have like self-destructive tendencies, on the other hand, it would be so frustrating when you're basically like the movie equivalent of Ernest Hemingway and you're working with all these dumbasses who can't see what's staring them square in the face and over and over and over again you just have all these producers and execs trying to either ruin your movie or ruin its release so I guess what you you would develop a chip on your shoulder. So I can sympathize with his plight. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially for somebody who making movies was his life. You know, he went from one to. I mean, what at his most productive, you just see as one movie is is in you know post production, he's already started pre production on his next one. Like yeah, he just had really a, juicy late sixties to like early mid seventies period is a very very rich vein. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and yeah, you would, you would get to a point and, you know, he didn't suffer fools gladly and, 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 uh, yeah, you would, you, I, I can see somebody self-destructing like that, you know? So, um, but yeah, ride the high country. I think of these three movies, no spoilers, I guess, or spoiler. Uh, I think this is the best of these three movies, uh, um, just in terms of just all around in terms of the yeah, script. I think that's totally fair. I mean, the, the shootest, I'm much more a fan of the book and unforgiven. I really do like unforgiven. However, I like many of Clint Eastwood's other Westerns far more. So yeah, but whereas uh, ride the high country, as I said, I think it's first tier peck and pause. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, it is, it is. And it's, yeah, definitely, definitely one of his best, uh, and definitely one made before his self-destructive tendencies took and it's over. One of those ones where you don't have to explain to somebody ahead of time all the compromises that were kind of forced foisted upon it. Like whenever you recommend a Peckinpah movie later, I was like, oh well, you got to you watch it, but you have to keep this in mind that this happened along the way, which totally derailed or destroyed the movie. Where I always feel like you're having to make these kind of. Um, you have to just give too much backstory to put people in the proper frame of mind to watch it. Ride the high country. You can just put it in with no explanation and just enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid is my favorite movie of all time. And uh, when people decide, oh, you know, wow, you, you know, you've seen a lot of movies. You know a lot of movies. You know, know a lot about Westerns and stuff. I want to see your favorite movie. I've never watched it. And I always have to give caveats. Like, yeah. 
It's my favorite movie of all time, but... Yeah, but here's my hour <laughs> spiel on what happened. So you have to keep all that yes. in mind before you watch it. <laughs> it's not a final cut, and you have to make sure that... This, and this scene is weird, and he was clearly out of his mind when he did it, and they had to shoot... You know, so... Uh, obviously but this one, they did have to do a little bit of that. You know, it was very low budget. They snuck on the set to how the West was one to, to film some of the scenes. Uh, and they, they were shooting in the mountains and then they couldn't shoot there anymore because of weather. So then they had to, you know, they had to shoot, uh, in like Griffith park for certain parts and stuff like that. So it still was a, uh, thrown together, um, thrown together, you know, movie, low budget film. So it, it still had adversity against it, but I think Peckinpah was at the top of his game in terms of, uh, limiting his self-destructiveness, you know, so hundred percent. The Western movie has become an American tradition. Films like stagecoach, red river, Shane, high noon, and the magnificent seven will never be forgotten. Now, Dino De Laurentiis presents perhaps the greatest Western of them all. The Shootist. The story of John Bernard Books, the last of the great gunfighters. A living legend. The role is being played by an actor who is himself a living legend, John Wayne. I won't be wronged. I won't be insulted. I won't be laid a hand on. I don't do these things to other people. I require the same from them. You hold it right there. Just throw me your wallet. Yes, sir. A little something extra. Co-starring with Wayne is a group of Hollywood's finest actors. James Stewart. You have a cancer. Advanced. How much time do I have? Two months, six weeks. There's no way to tell. Lauren Bacall. Mr. Books, you are a notorious individual, utterly lacking in character or decency. You're an assassin. It's going to which end of the gun you're on. Rubbish. Ron Howard. Would you give me a shooting lesson? Well, a man should know how to handle a gun. How could you get into so many fights and then always come out on top? I found out early that most men, regardless of cause or need, blink an eye or draw a breath before they pull a trigger. I won't. Richard Boone. Well, I heard. You were in town for a very short time. That's true. John Carradine. I'm Hezekiah Beckham, the undertaker, sir. Oh, Beckham, you're going to do to me what they did to John Wesley Harden. You're going to lay me out, let the public come by and gawp at me for 50 cents a head. Mr. Books, you're a hard man. I'm alive. Scatman Crothers. Mr. Books, this pure pleasure to groom your horse and even a greater pleasure to do business with you. Harry Morgan. Books, this is 1901. The old days are gone, and you don't know it. You've plain plum outlived your time. Richard Lenz. You must appreciate, sir, that you are the most celebrated shootist extant. Extant? Still existing. Sherry North. Everybody knows who you are. I'd be Mrs. J.B. Books. I'd be somebody. Hugh O'Brien. Old Books is cashing in. That's hard news. It's a man I could have taken. This film has the makings of a classic. I would not die a death like I just described. Not if I had your courage. In it, John Wayne gives the most remarkable performance of his career. I'm a dying man, scared of the dark. 
as he recreates the final days. There's more to being a man than handling a gun. Of the man they called the shootist. Beautiful. All right. Well, let's dip into the shootist. I think we should start with the book because obviously the book came first. And then obviously the author passes the baton to his son who writes the screenplay. And then the screenplay leads to the movie, which is John Wayne's final film that he ever gets to make. And contrary to the myths, he was not dying of cancer as he made this. He had had surgeries and he was had a compromised health, etc. But he didn't die for a few more years. But this is... Much like how Randolph Scott made his final movie with Ride the High Country, this just is, John Wayne didn't want to go out with this one. It just turned out to be the one that he went out with. But man, for a guy who had made so many great movies with Howard Hawks and so many great movies with John Ford, going out with a, a brilliant book with, directed by Don Siegel, surrounded by all the old friends like John, John Carradine and Jimmy Stewart and so on and so forth, I think it's a very fitting farewell to the Duke. But it's not on the level of Rio Bravo. It's not on the level of Red River. It's not on the level of Fort Apache or Stagecoach or The Searchers. But it is a pretty fucking great movie. But the book, I just fell into it. And I had so much fucking fun. I've been reading a lot of fantasy recently. Probably too much fantasy. And to switch gears and read a Western was so much goddamn fun. Especially one that's got just the most gritty, ruthless dialogue imaginable. And these like these beautiful poetic passages, the way he describes action or the way this uh, this character is looking back on his life. But before I get too far ahead of myself, maybe you should just tell people, what is the story of The Shootist? So the story of The Shootist is, uh, you know, it's about this, uh, this aging gunfighter who uh, finds out that he has uh, advanced prostate cancer. And, you know, in... In the 19th century, or, or I guess this one is the early 20th century, uh, there really was nothing you could do for someone. So his do- his doctor basically says, "I'm going to give you a laudanum, you know, liquid opium, um, and you're going to start shutting down. Like you're going to you're you're not going to be able to expel waste. Uh, you're going to be in horrible pain. The laudanum will stop working." Uh, maybe you should kill yourself. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what the doctor tells him. Absolutely. And- so he so he stays in this in this uh, boarding house, uh, and uh, the the lady who runs it doesn't know who he is initially, uh, but her son, who is this ne'er do well kind of uh, just asshole punk, um, he he knows who this gunfighter is, J.B. Books, and uh, and he kind of idolizes him, and he wants to be a gunfighter and all this other stuff, and as it goes along. Uh, the character of JB books decides I'm not going to go out, you know, out of my mind in screaming in pain, you know, I'm going to go out with my boots on. So he, uh, basically invites the, the hard cases in town. And in the book, it's El Paso in the movie, it's Carson city. Um, and, uh, basically to meet him, to have a gunfight in a bar so he can go out like a man, um, and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's basically, that's basically the story of it. Um, Glendon Swarthout, who wrote it, um, he was inspired by a few things. One, the life of the real gunfighter, John Wesley Harden. And, uh, John Wesley Harden was probably the most deadly of all the gunfighters. Um, he killed anywhere between 25 to 50 people in a nine year span from the age of 15 
to uh, 24, and then he was arrested. And, and it's he the became name of a really cool Bob Dylan album as well. Yes, but he puts a G on it. He calls him John Wesley Harding. Oh, gotcha. Uh, Interesting. <laughs> I think by mistake. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, lot, no, not a lot of movies about John Wesley Harden. There was The Lawless Breed with Rock Hudson. Uh, one of the reasons is that he was a virulent racist. So <laughs> he's not the most sympathetic guy. He's the guy famously known for shooting a man for snoring. Anyway, after he got out of, uh, out of, after he got out of prison, he went to El Paso and uh, he was shot in the back of the head um, in a bar. And so he, so uh, Glennon, Glendon Swarthout took aspects of his life. Uh, the fact that he, you know, he dies in a bar in El Paso, and you know, his, his this idea of an aging gunfighter and all that. Um, but then he'd also read this study about long distance truckers and how they had higher rates of prostate cancer because they're sitting for such long periods of time. Yep. And he, yep. he figured that people in the West would be on horseback all the time and. If you got prostate cancer, then there was really nothing, nothing they could do for you, and you would just die a horrible death. So unless they want to gut you like a fish, as they say, to try to scoop it out, and even then, probably still going to die a horrible death. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, their their methods of surgery at the time were were not up to par. So, um, so you know, and just this idea of this. This badass tough guy, I will not be laid a hand upon, you know, this this dealer of death. Eventually he, you know, the book and the movie, they don't really have a main villain. The villain is just death. <laughs> you know, the villain is just cancer, you know. Although in uh, the book, I feel like Gillum kind of is the villain for a lot of it in terms of how dishonesty is and all the things that he's doing but obviously in the movie ron howard's portrayal of him is much more sympathetic and soft and it's one of my grievances with the movies that ron howard is kind of so wholesome in a lot of ways yeah yeah well he's definitely a shithead in the book i don't know if i would call him the villain yeah but he's like he's a, a punk a... kid who just needs to have be like just needs to be pistol whipped just to kind of teach him a good lesson <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and so the book is just pitch black dark and Glendon Swarthout's uh, Westerns are usually pretty dark right now. I'm actually reading. They came to uh, Cardura. I've never seen the movie with Gary Cooper, but uh, it's kind of about the Mexican revolution and soldiers and stuff like that. But the way he describes the, the battles, he's like a proto Cormac McCarthy in terms of like the clinical detail of <laughs> gunshot wounds, you know, uh, and in the shootouts, especially the way he describes, you know, just how the bullet passes through here and takes the piece of this bone. And I would argue that, yeah, the way he writes action is as beautiful and horrifying as like a really well choreographed Sam Peckinpah action scene. You're just like, wow, like he slows it down and distends time and adds so many beautiful little details. But I found the way he writes action to be particularly good. I, I was, I was totally enthralled. He, he writes everything well. I mean, it's, it's just as he writes the doctor's prognosis about how he's going to die screaming in agony and all the symptoms he's going to be feeling. I mean, he's, it's, it's, it's beautifully horrifying all at once. And, that, and that's what makes it so much fun. Yeah. He is an uncompromising author. He also wrote the Holmesman, which Tommy Lee Jones made into a movie. Uh, and that one has, you know, these crazy ladies throwing babies down privy holes. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's like he, he didn't, he didn't, uh, sugarcoat anything and the bleakness 
of the diagnosis and the symptoms and everything uh, is just so it's such a dark pitch black book but in a but it still has these it still has a humanity to it it's not it's not just there just to be grotesque you know um but but he doesn't sugarcoat anything and it's also incredibly inspiring like when he writes his little i guess like letter at the end about like about queen victoria and also about how he's had a hell of a good time and everything like i love how he refuses to kind of surrender to despair I mean, he has some really dark bleak moments but at a certain point he's like all right i'm gonna stop using the laudanum i'm gonna stop feeling sorry for myself i'm gonna basically wait until i can't really i'm, I'm basically i'm gonna live as long as i can but when it's time to go i'm gonna do it with my, my with my shoulder squared back my back straight and just kind of i'm gonna march forward and, and meet my destiny and i found a lot of it incredibly inspiring like i imagine say i got a i was diagnosed with like a horrible brain tumor tomorrow I'd probably mm-hmm. find a lot of, I guess, maybe hope in reading this um, in this particular book because I feel like it does. I feel like it would help you face death in a lot of ways. Me personally, I would just drink the laudanum until I was gone. <laughs> gotcha. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it, there is a certain admirable quality to it, and and I I did briefly speak with uh, Miles Swarthout years ago. Um, he, he just passed, I think uh, a couple months ago, unfortunately, but, um, and he did confirm that the Westerns of Peckinpah were to a degree influential to the shootist, uh, specifically ride the high country and the wild bunch. And yeah, those, and you're absolutely right. The, the descriptions of the violence really gives you that like slowed down, peck and paw feeling and just also the uncompromising way and just the idea of living past your prime and that's not unique to peck and paw but he's the one that really i think uh did it the best and so you you would have to you'd have to be influenced yeah i mean here's a great little passage that i underlines as the effects of low velocity slugs fired at close range from weapons of heavy caliber 38s and 45s are massive. Serrano had sent a bullet through Jacob's ribcage from the right side at a distance of nine feet. After encountering bone, entering the chest cavity anteriorly, the slug tumbled through the lower lobe of the left lung, macerating it before exiting posteriorly through the ribcage on the left side, tearing an exit wound the size of a fist. Like, it's incredible stuff. I was just like, his command of the English language was just, it made me high reading it. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, just... You don't get that feeling from from the Wayne, the John Wayne film. Not at all. I, when as I was watching, I was like, you know, I love John Wayne to pieces. I love his legacy. I love his filmmaking. But you can tell he had a bit of a wet blanket effect where he cleaned it up, and he. Again, the, you sent me a little five-minute behind-the-scenes documentary about the making of, and he's talking about how movies aren't more violent in the 70s, but they're depicted in such a graphic way that for a lot of people it turns their stomach. He just he was starting to talk and feel and act like an old person, whereas most people in the 70s, they were ready for like fucking Sam Peckinpah or Don Siegel or just uh, or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or whatever. People were ready for movies to be a little more hardcore, and I feel like had Sam Peckinpah done the shootouts in the 70s, it would have been quite a different movie and it would have arguably been like one of the greatest Westerns ever made. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's so primed for for someone like Peckinpah to do it. And 
and I like Don Siegel. Like I think I, I mean I Fuck Charlie him, Bear- Don Siegel's one of the masters, but I don't think this is yeah. one of his first tier, or possibly it might not even be one of his second tier movies. It's it's not the if I was recommending somebody starting watch the movies of Don Siegel, it's a no brainer. You start with Dirty Harry, and then you go from there. And and the thing is, I think that John Wayne is actually really great in the shootist. I think it's a great performance from him, and uh, and I you know I. When you know John Wayne, he's made a lot of shitty movies, and and uh, and uh, I, you know, I think that his performance in True Grit is a little overrated. I think he, he's oh, a little. It's very hammy. I love True Grit, but it's a little cartoonish at times. Yeah, and I think that he's so much better. Obviously, like in The Searchers, but and Red River. Fuck and, yeah! Like, I think John Wayne is is one of the great actors in the sense that he didn't have to do much but you're just watching him and he just has this charisma and people say he played the same part over and over again but who cares like i you know <laughs> and i don't buy that i mean if you watch red watch a double feature red river and the searchers they're both really ruthless performances but ruthless in entirely different ways and i feel like i think it's a, an oversimplification to say that he just played john wayne every time he stepped in front of the stage or you watch I mean, if you watch Stagecoach and then you watch, say, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, it's night and day. So, yeah, Man Who Shot Liberty, he's amazing in that one. Like, he's just such a badass. But then, you know, where he's telling Lee Marvin to pick up the steak and all that. But then also, you know, the, the his sadness of losing the girl and all that. Like, he's he's great. And so he is great in The Shootist, and it's a fitting movie. And the thing is, he did really love the book, and he lobbied for the part. I think that he felt a certain kinship with the character, you know, the idea of this guy past his time, you know, with the, struggling with cancer and these other things. Obviously, it resonated with him. But it sounds like he might have forgotten that he wasn't directing. I mean, John Wayne was happy to direct movies. He directed The Green Berets. He directed The Alamo. But Don Siegel was directing this movie, and John Wayne would – Make, give a lot of instructions on how to shoot scenes and how to stage things. And like, he didn't want to be shot at the nose. He didn't want to, to be depicted in a certain fashion. And that clip you sent me, he's arguing like, he's oh, if I'm lying here and you're shooting there, you're going to be shooting right up my nose. He's really preoccupied about not being shot by the camera up the, no- <laughs> up the nose. And so much of the Don Siegel ended up storming off the set at one point because it was very clear they're having a situation where there were two people kind of directing the film. Well, yeah, and the thing he'd never worked with Don Siegel before. Don Siegel was known for making Clint Eastwood movies, Dirty Harry, uh, um, Two Two Mules for Sister Sarah. He did that one, right? Yep. Uh, and, and what's the uh, one where he plays the the cop in New York? Um, was it Cougar's Bluff or Cougar's Bluff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, so yeah, he did, and he also did like the Bagad. I mean, he did a shitload of Clint Eastwood movies, but he also did arguably Clint Eastwood's like best movies. <laughs> so, I mean, although it, fuck it, Sergio yeah. Leone also. I mean, they Sergio Leone and the Don, they both did great Clint Eastwood movies. But we'll get to that when we talk about Unforgiven. Yeah, and so. Uh, but you know, clearly that clearly John Wayne was he was aware of who he was, and he was very protective of his image. And that's why, you know, that line that I mentioned earlier where he says, "I'm an old man afraid of the dark, that that aspect, the fact that he was willing to open up in that respect is just is really great, you know, this very humble thing, but he also he didn't want to be as dark and gritty as the book you know another 
big fan of the book was Ronald Reagan. He said it was like a treasure yeah, or something. It's on on the back of the copy that I have, it's a treasured oh, edition okay. to my library, Ronald Reagan. So you got Library <laughs> Journal, Los Angeles Times, Ronald Reagan, Arizona Republican Times of London, all those quotes. But I was like, all right, well, Reagan, yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but, uh, but so, what I love about the movie, probably my favorite bit about the movie, is when you get this great highlight reel of all these John Wayne movies as the backdrop for the character. I mean, you get scenes from Red River, Hondo, Rio Bravo, and El Dorado, and sometimes they fuck with the color versus black and white and that sort of thing. But I, I did think it was interesting seeing how, like like you mentioned earlier, they're they're acutely aware of John Wayne's legacy and history as a filmmaker and as an actor. So why not incorporate that into the mythology of this character that he's playing? Yeah, yeah, that scene, you know, that it, it's 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 kind of a wild idea to do. Uh, I I like it well enough. I don't think it's necessary. I we know John Wayne. We know his movies. You know what I mean? Like we well, you and I do. But sometimes, <laughs> like, what, you have to also remember, like sometimes the movies are somebody's very first introduction to an actor or a particular genre. And so I feel like, say, I was eighteen or nineteen years old, sitting down with like my grandfather's, like, you got to watch this western. I loved it when I was a kid, and we're we're watching it now. Seeing that little highlight reel might be your gateway drug into discovering what those movies are. Yeah, that is true. It some of it's a little confusing because in some of the some of the shots he's wearing a badge, and you're like, is he was he a lawman? You know what I mean? Because well, they're, like, yeah, they're showing chants from Rio Bravo, and so yeah, they yeah. show the scene where he's like, let's oh, no, it's not the let's make some noise, Colorado. It's the scene where Colorado comes out and Angie Dickinson throws like the flower pot through the window and they blow this guy's away. But it's one of my favorite yeah. scenes from Rio Bravo. But they showed in black and white. Where I'm like, well, fuck you, Rio Bravo is not a black and white movie. Yeah, but. Uh, so, uh, and, and there's just, you know, there's great stuff. It's good to see him with Jimmy Stewart who had retired up to that point. Yeah. He's basically uh, deaf and missing his cues. And apparently they got in a little trouble on set because Don Siegel said, thought they were like phoning it in. And they're like, if you'd like the scene done better, you better get a couple of like better actors. But you know, they're just, they're old as dog shit at this point, <laughs> but Jimmy Stewart can still do his thing. Especially when he, my favorite line in the entire story is when he says like, all right, bend over, trap door down. And I'm just like, Oh uh, God, yeah. <laughs> you're about to have fingers and eyeballs like up your butt, looking at all your all your nether parts and so on and so forth. But just like that euphemism, trap door down, it's like you, you know he's about to have some serious invasion of his privacy. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that is the best thing is the is about the movie is the humility that 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 Wayne plays as the character because yeah, you wouldn't expect him or you it just wouldn't be in a movie. Uh, uh, decades previous, but just yeah, when they're you know, talking about somebody examining his butthole, like yeah, that's just not John Wayne's. <laughs> <laughs> that's not his modus operandi. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, and and it's just great also to see you know John Carradine there, and and I think in that in, in those uh, the thing I sent you at the making of it, there's a really nice part where John Carradine at that point I think was such an alcoholic he just He's couldn't really even fumbling through his lines, and they're being very accommodating, trying to help him get through the scene because he can still do it, but it's hard for him to not to have a lot of like ums and ahs and that sort of thing in there. Yeah, it's uh, and it's just there's a really sweet moment where where John Wayne is like, it's okay, you know, take your time. We're going to take it. You know, it's just really nice kind of thing to see between these friends. It's, it's actually kind of a touching part, almost as touching as anything in the movie. <laughs> oh yeah. Cause you, you immediately are reminded of stagecoach and like, you know, from 1939, it's like, wow, 40 years prior, these guys were doing Westerns then it's just incredible how much history has gone by. Yeah. And then, and, and then, you know, Richard Boone, he turns up, Hugh O'Brien turns up. It's, and, uh, I can't remember that guy's name. He's in all the Clint Eastwood movies, Don Siegel movies. Um, 
the other guy in the bar. I don't remember his name. You also have the rapist from Deliverance in here as well. He's always oh, like, yeah. well, what I require of you is to get your ass up in the woods. Like <laughs> that guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, so, uh, but yeah, Wayne definitely softened the material. And so for, for, for people that haven't read the book, you know, in the, in the movie, Ron Howard's character is just, he's very nice. He's, 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 you don't ever believe that he's gonna choose like the evil path. You no, just he's, don't. A, he's a wholesome all American boy in, in the and movie. Even when he sells his horse in, in the book, he's doing it because he's basically just stealing his money. You know, once he realizes that, that JB books is dying, he gets, you know, he just begins to hate him. Yeah. And, uh, and they even fight at one point and he's almost like kind of bullying him. I mean, it, it, he, he's a, tr- a total bastard. Like I said, he needs somebody just to smack him over the head with a fucking revolver and teach him a goddamn lesson. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and in the movie they change it to where, well, I was going to give you, he just gives him the money. Like, Oh, I was selling it to give you the money or what, you know? And it's just like yeah. the defang and declaw a lot of the most gripping scenes. And that, that for me was, it was kind of frustrating. And so I, once again, I get why John Wayne wanted to make a movie for his aging fan base and his fan base was getting older by 1976. But when you've read the book and you've just, you've like just been, I don't know, like rolling around and just the glories of how effective the novel is. It can be, I, I would, I, what I would recommend, I don't know, maybe, maybe not see the movie, just read the book. But then again, it is, if you love John Wayne, you kind of have no choice, but you have but to see the shooters at some point. Yeah. And, and it's a, you know, I'd always liked the shooters, but it is one of those things. Once I read the book, I was like, ah, oh, yeah. Missed opportunity. <laughs> and, and there, and, uh, you know, and so like you know, in the in in the book, uh, the Gil- character Gillum, he he, uh, when the sh- when there's a sweet gesture when JB Books is gonna go die, uh, he leaves all this money. He's collecting all this money throughout, and he leaves this money for um, you know Mrs. Rogers. I can't remember her first name. Uh, the 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 lady who's running the boarding house. Uh, you know, and uh, in the book, you're like, oh wow, that's really nice and everything. <laughs> Then Gillum comes in and steals it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, that motherfucker. Like, it's bad. And nothing like that happens yeah, in the movie. Yeah, and also the movie chickens out on just how awful the cancer is. Like, his, his symptoms and the way he feels and the way he looks. He basically looks like a walking corpse by the end. And that, yeah. and like, it's like almost every opportunity they have to soften the movie they do. Or like when that, the girl on the, uh, the streetcar at the end, how basically in the book he gets his opportunity in spite of looking like the walking dead, he gets his last kiss. It's the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. And he gets to kiss her, but at least he gets to have something resembling a sexual moment because obviously his old mistress has come to see him. And in the book is this really gross scene about how she's like fumbling yeah. around, like reaching for his junk. And he kind of laughs and is like, Oh, that's where the cancer is. And she like recoils in horror. It's a really yeah. filthy, disgusting scene in, in the novel. And it's just, it, it, as you're watching it, like, Oh my God, I can't believe they softened that. Oh, they softened that too. And so the pretty much the only thing they didn't soften is that line you mentioned. I won't be wronged. I won't be insulted. And I won't be laid a hand on. I don't do these things to other people. And I require the same from them. Like that's the one part that really remains pure from book to movie. But the, but what people also kind of have to understand is that the movie is, is in terms of the events that happen is close to the book. It is not, you know, it is, it's a close adaptation, but the tone and the feel yeah. is same synopsis. Diff- absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. 
But I mean, like it shares, I would say in terms of sharing scenes, it's probably 75%, which is kind of rare uh, with an adaptation. So that's what's, that's what's so fascinating in terms of adaptation is that, you it's a know, game of inches. yeah, you shave here and shave there and adjust there. And suddenly you're dealing with a quite a different experience. Yeah. And it's like, so like I just recently read uh, Elmore Leonard's Rum Punch, which became Jackie Brown. And they so much the 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 film diverges from the book in so many ways different location and different so many things are cut out and different and it's a lot of the dialogue most of the dialogue is different and everything but it retains the feel of it like it really it feels like an elmore leonard adaptation it gets the spirit of it and this one really doesn't get the spirit <laughs> uh of of uh of the book um yeah not 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 remotely and i mean once again i don't want to be harsh on the movie because I did enjoy the movie, but because I love seeing Lauren McCall in action, I love seeing Jimmy Stewart in action, I love seeing Harry Morgan in action. Like I love seeing all the, I love seeing Scatman Crothers. I mean, Scatman Crothers, he's he's such a character, but it, it just feel like it's a series of missed opportunities. But John Wayne, I know with like, even though he wasn't dying while he made this, his health was really compromised. He had in '64 been diagnosed with lung cancer, had his entire left lung and a couple of ribs removed. And he was cancer-free, but he really struggled. I know at one point he got really sick because of the elevation. And he was even commenting at one point in the set. He said, he told Lauren Bacall, I can't smoke anymore, can't drink anymore. All the fun's gone. <laughs> That's a really yeah. depressing thing to hear. Like I read Frank Zappa's autobiography. And he's talking about how he was sitting there somewhere in L.A., late 60s. I think playing, he was playing at the whiskey, and he had this limo pulled up. And John Wayne got out of the car with a couple of bodyguards and what obviously a couple like strippers and hookers. And he picked Frank Zappa off the ground and started like shaking him and slapping him. He said, I saw you once play in Egypt. You were great. And then you blew me. And he kind of threw him aside like a rag doll. And Zappa was like, that's the weirdest fucking thing anyone's ever said, said or done. <laughs> but John Wayne was just partying like aggressively. And so obviously at this point, the, his partying days were in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. I've heard stories that he would get so drunk he would show up at the wrong house, thinking it was his. So imagine, you know, in the '60s or something. Uh, there's a knock. Someone's trying to get in, and you open it. And it's John Wayne, drunk out of his mind. You know. Yeah, <laughs> so, just six foot uh, five and belligerent, <laughs> just terrifying. Yeah. But uh, one of the reasons for softening, especially with the end. So, so in the in the film, Ron Howard's character. Um, he uh, he shoots the bartender who shoots uh, the JB books, and then he throws the gun away, and uh, you get the idea. Oh, he's not going to become a gunfighter or, or you know whatever. And uh, this was a big point of contention because I know Miles Worthout was trying to retain as much of his his uh, his father's book as he could, and. Um, and uh, the, there's, there's reasons for it, and one is that uh, some have said that John Wayne wanted to protect – because he really loved Ron Howard. He said he was the most talented young actor he's worked with or whatever. Uh, he didn't want to happen to him what had happened to Bruce Dern where – And the Cowboys <laughs> when you shot him in the back. Yeah, where everyone, yeah, gets pissed off. And, and a, lot of, a lot of what happened with the Cowboys affected this movie, so beyond just that – um, in the Cowboys, he's killed, and all these young boys get revenge, and they're killing all these guys, you know. And these are these are like teenagers, um, just murdering these people. 
Uh, and that was really controversial. Uh, I know Pauline Kale was like so mad that they would have that they would celebrate young kids killing people. John Wayne apparently got le- tons of letters from mothers like this is a terrible message and everything like that. So I think he was really aware of that and he didn't want a repeat of that. And I just think he probably didn't want to go out. I mean, like you said, he didn't necessarily know this was his last movie, but I know that it resonated and I'm sure he didn't once he's he I think he knew he was uh if not uh gonna die soon but he was you know in that state and he probably didn't want to do something so dark he probably didn't want to play a character who has prostate cancer who shoots a man in the ass (laughs) 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 so that he knows what it feels like you know so um uh so yeah yeah I get it and as a as a swan song for Wayne, it's good. It's not one of the great movies. I think, I think it's a yeah. I Reynolds think got got a better a, swan song. Yeah, I think it's kind of an ugly movie. Uh, not in a way of like it's has this beauty, like this ugly beauty, a uh, gritty beauty. I just think it's kind of ugly. It's I don't think it's particularly well shot. Whereas um, Ride the High Country is a pleasure for the eyes. Yeah, I mean, and one thing is because it's basically mostly in a, in a, in a town, so you're not going to get the panoramic vistas and all that. But even just the way the interiors are shot and stuff, a lot of it just kind of feels like a '70s TV movie in terms of the aesthetic to it, which I don't particularly like. The gunfight at the end in the bar room, there's some cool elements with the mirror and stuff like that, but. It's also confusing. But in the novel as written, it's as thrilling and exciting as like the climax to The Wild Bunch. And so once you've read that shootout, like I said, when it's just broken down into so many beautiful little pieces, I don't think I've ever seen an action scene in a book broken down to the point where you feel almost like you're seeing several frames of film and then cutting to other frames. He really writes it almost like a film editor putting together some sort of masterful sequence. Yeah, and in the movie, it's just weird because Richard Boone's character, who in the book is sort of this Mexican version of like Jack Elam, like this guy with a fucking weird, crooked, milky eye or whatever, which he then gets shot in, and it talks about the gelatinous ooze coming out. But in in the movie, he he picks up a table. I don't know what he's doing. He picks up a table, and he's running towards John Wayne, who's behind a bar, shooting at him. Yeah, it's what like, yeah, guess plan? what? Yeah, that, that's not going to shield you from shit. <laughs> And and it doesn't, and then he just falls down dead, and you're like, well, what was going? I don't, I still don't understand what his strategy was, and it's just like, why? It's there's just questionable choices uh, in in the in the film, specifically in that scene. I I don't really understand. <laughs> I don't I don't know what what he was doing. I don't know why they did it that way. But there's just a lot of those kind of things. I I think it's a solid movie. Uh, it's a nice end for John Wayne because he's so good in it. Um, but I, it's definitely not a great movie. And uh, Yeah, and, whether you're talking John Wayne, Don Siegel, or just Westerns in general, I wouldn't recommend anybody start with the shootest ever. But if you are a Western junkie or a Don Siegel junkie or a John Wayne junkie, you're going to get to it sooner or later. It's going to be on your to-do list, but it's not – I wouldn't say it's in anybody's top five of you know, like essential – 
films, like Don Siegel, he made so many other movies like Invasion of the Body Snatchers or Escape from Alcatraz or Dirty Harry that are way better. And John Wayne obviously made movies that are way better. Just Westerns. Yeah, it's just, it's a very solid, enjoyable movie. But I would say if you like to turn the page of a book from time to time, put The Shootist on your to-do list because it's short. It's like 200 pages. You can read it fairly quickly. And it's just a, it's just an absolute pleasure to read. It's one of my favorite reading experiences I've had all year. Even, even uh, I'd even put maybe even Flaming Star, uh, the Elvis, <laughs> John Don Siegel Western. I might even put that above it. I, I think it. I think the stature of this movie is there because it's John Wayne's last movie, and because it's not an embarrassment, and because it's a solid film. I think it has a, I think it has a bigger stature amongst Western fans than it probably truly deserves. Uh, especially when you consider the book. And I know that I know for a lot of people, you know, you always hear that the book's better and all that. And, and uh, maybe that's annoying for people, but, but it's true. The book, <laughs> the <laughs> the book, book, the is, book is better. And it, and it, and, it, and it, it is so short that it almost reads like a screenplay. Uh, you know, you could just get through. I'd, I've never, I've read the book, I think about three or four times now. I've never not read it in one sitting. <laughs> so, uh, so it's a, yeah, it's, it, it just flies by. Um, and for those that are interested, there's a sequel written by the sun, not great. Uh, it, it, it kind of touches upon the character of Gillum and how he becomes a gunfighter, but the plot, he has a Mexican girlfriend who gets captured and put in a brothel and it's just more pulpy. And the character of Gillum is totally inconsistent uh, with the with the character in the book, he's really a lot more like the Ron Howard character. He's it's a always much dangerous nicer. in a son sort of writing or continuing their father's work. Like with the Killer Angels, probably like the best one of the best novels you will ever read about the Civil War, which is all about the Battle of Gettysburg. And then his son can basically kind of decided to keep it going with like gods and generals and things like that. And it's like you know what, just carve your own path. You don't need to do a sequel to your dad's book. Killer Angels is is perfect, and just leave it alone and carve your own path. Yeah, I mean, because the book is such a such a perfect concept. It's it's not necessarily high concept, but it's just like, yeah, it's that kind of taking that pulpy aspect and just putting reality on it and going, what about this? You've never seen this a guy, you know, uh, this idea of a gunfighter who's lived past his time, but he's you know he's dying of. I mean, it's a perfect idea, and so. Writing a sequel that's just a pulpy thing where my girlfriend got kidnapped, I've got to go rescue her. It's just totally wrong, <laughs> like totally wrong. So it's not a terrible book. It's very readable. It's not bad, but it's basically – it's just like a pulpy sort of Walmart – you know, page turner, you gotcha. know, so he doesn't uh, have passages like this. Like when he's, uh, thinking about his, uh, back on his life he says, Oh, I have fed on honeydew on wine and whiskey and champagne and the tender white meat of women and fine clothes and respect of strong men and fear of weak and the turn of a card and good horses and the crisp of greenbacks and the cool of mornings and all the elbow room that God or man could ask for. I have had high times, but the best times of all were afterward, just afterward with the gun warm in my hand, the bite of smoke in my nose, the taste of death on my my tongue, my heart high in my gullet, the danger passed, and then the sweat, suddenly in the nothingness, and the sweet, clean feel of being born. I mean, as I read that, I was just oh, yeah. in awe. <laughs> like, holy <laughs> shit, this, is a, this guy can fucking the, write. At the end, when after Gillum kills him, and he does a callback to that, where he has that sweet, clean feeling of being born, and that's like the end of the book, 
and you, it's just like, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, yeah, perfect, beautiful, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a, a very, very satisfying read. Like, it, nothing, there, it doesn't ring a false note at any point. And so, yeah, I just, reading that book was one of my favorite experiences I've had all year by far. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a, it's, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, and, uh, and the movie, it's, it's worth seeing, but it's, but it's, compromised and it's not one of John Wayne's best and those of you rode it yesterday you get one drink for that too hold it now hold it now now that's two but after that it comes out of your own pocket you hear me skinny yes sir all right we're pulling out early in the morning we're going to chase these fellas clear down to Texas, so don't spend too much of your own money, right? <laughs> We're going to divide up into four parties, and we'll hit all the farms and the trails to make a big circle. And we're bound to come across somebody who's seen these skunks. Fella owns this shithole. You fat man, speak up. Uh, I own this establishment. Bought it from Greeley for a thousand dollars. You better clear out of there. Yes, sir. Just hold it right there. Hold it! Well, sir, you are a cowardly son of a bitch. You just shot an unarmed man. Well, he should have armed himself. He's gonna decorate his saloon with my friend. You'd be William Money out of Missouri. Killer women and children. That's right. I've killed women and children. Killed just about everything that walks or crawled at one time or another. And I'm here to kill you, little Bill. For what you did to Ned. You boys better move away. So let's move on to the the final film on our list, Unforgiven, where my sentimental affection perhaps exceeds my objective love of it because this was the first time where I actually got in a car with my own car keys and my own license and deliberately drove to the movie theater to see a movie starring Clint Eastwood. There was something about the trailer that even though it's just a dumbass teenager who thought Universal Soldier was a good movie... I <laughs> something about the trailer really got to me, and I, I could just and I had no real appreciation for Clint Eastwood at that time. I'd met him when I was ten at a ski resort, and gotten oh, his wow. auto, gotten his autograph, and we kept that picture on the wall like my entire childhood. But I I didn't have any knowledge of who he was or what his great movies were. I finally, when I was like fourteen, saw Dirty Harry, and I was like, oh shit, this is this is something special. 
but when Unforgiven came out, I was just I bought into the hype. I loved Gene Hackman and I loved Morgan Freeman and I, I loved everything that was teased and promised in the trailer. And I remember feeling kind of proud of myself that I was able to watch a movie that wasn't a hardcore balls to the wall like Young Gun style rock and roll western. And I, I, I kind of felt grown up that I was able to get into the spirit of things because a lot of people at the time my age were like, man, that movie was fucking boring. Like they they wanted they wanted it in the line of fire and they didn't get it and they they were frustrated. Yeah, I've seen it at least six or seven times since then. And every time you hear those the first few notes of that score, which Clint Eastwood played a large role in in composing, it still really gets me. I think it has some really beautiful moments and I think it has some of the best staged scenes of Clint Eastwood's career. So I would not put it on the level of a hauntingly beautiful fable like Pat Garen, Bill the Kid. But in the 90s, there are not a lot of great westerns to choose from, <laughs> and so I do really like Unforgiven. It sounds like I'm kind of like insulting it, but I, I'm not. I just don't place it on. I don't place it in the kind of the hallowed halls of the all-time great westerns. But in terms of '90s westerns, sure, it's fucking in the mix. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm basically on the same page. I really like it. Uh, I think it's a great movie. Uh, I think it might be. Clint Eastwood's best directorial effort, uh, just aesthetically, because I think he gets sloppy. So even something like Outlaw Josie Wales, which is fun, you know, great, but that Gatling Gun Massacre and Outlaw Josie Wales is so ineptly staged, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and then even like High Plains Drifter, where you just you you you're always kind of aware where he's cutting corners. So High Plains Drifter, they got this town, and it's all fresh lumber. Just because he's gonna paint it red eventually, but it's like what it like it's just the cheapness. Like he gets he gets lauded because he doesn't take doesn't do many takes. He's always on schedule. He's you know he's always under budget, and that's fine. But you see it. You watch American Sniper and they got a he's holding a baby doll, <laughs> trying to make it look like it's moving. You see where Clint Eastwood cuts corners as a director. At least I think his best aspect is that he is. I know he's kind of a no nonsense director. He just, he doesn't, uh, he usually sticks close to the screenplays that he has. He doesn't, he doesn't diverge. He doesn't order a lot of rewrites and, and he gets it done. But I also think that you can, you can tell where he's sort of cutting the corners. I, but I really like Unforgiven, but I think it gets overrated. And it's a very weird thing because people go, oh, they use the phrase that I absolutely hate which is, oh, it's no longer white hat, black hat, or whatever, which, number one, was never a thing in Westerns. <laughs> you know, Havel and Cassidy had a black hat. All these guys had black, Lash LaRue. All these heroes wore black hats all the time. It's such a stupid way to put things. But, but, other, but, but, but even then, it was written in the late 70s, and it's definitely a late, mid, like early to late 70s style Western. It's not really breaking any ground in terms of the themes that it's doing or the way it's deconstructing things or any of that stuff. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't break any new ground. Is it fair to say it's a weird thing where people who don't like Westerns or don't necessarily follow Westerns are the, perhaps the ones who overpraise it, whereas Western fans really like it, but they just kind of are more fair in their appraisal of it? 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. Like we just come off like Dances with Wolves, which is one which had swept the Oscars, and I think for whatever reason, westerns for a brief shining moment were like Oscar bait, and <laughs> which is a weird thing because yeah. never in the history of the western had they ever been Oscar bait, and then suddenly with Dances with Wolves, and then two years later, Unforgiven, westerns became Oscar bait, which is a really weird thing, and obviously that'll probably n- <laughs> never happen again. Yeah, probably not, but but. I mean, to a certain degree, I guess I understand it because you also have, you know, the the westerns of the '80s, uh, Silverado, Young Guns. Uh, you know, the you could see where this was a hearkening back to a different time where westerns were mean and nasty and uh, morally ambiguous. So I could see how it's a change of pace if you're just thinking of 80s westerns, but it's not really, uh, you know, I mean, we watched Dirty Little Billy, uh, you know, about a year ago or whatever. And, uh, you know, you, I mean, this isn't, this isn't doing anything that that movie isn't doing in terms of the grit and the sloppiness and the, you know, moral ambivalence or, but the, I would say the difference between this and a lot of those revisionist 70s westerns is that the script is excellent. Like yeah. David yeah. Webb Peebles' script. The dialogue is really well done and has has such a deep bench of really good characters. Like People can talk all day about how William Money's character is almost like a reckoning of Clint Eastwood with all of his past characters. But I think the real part in this is Gene Hackman's role. Gene Hackman gets the great, he is the great morally ambiguous kind of, I mean, he is in theory the villain, but he's a very complex villain. And I think his scenes where he's talking about how to win a gunfight and who wins, who who dies, who lives, are very reminiscent of the shootist in terms of your ability to stay calm, cool, and collected are far more important than being the like the fastest guy on the draw because in that great story he tells earlier about when Richard Harris's character won some famous duels because the other guy pulled too quickly and shot his own toe off and you know then his gun ended up blowing up in his hands like all those scenes I find very shootist esque. Yes, and uh, and David Webb Peebles he had for the longest time uh, um, he didn't ever want to make a movie with killing in it. Because he figured that movies just kind of played it as something that is just, you know, you kill, he's, I think he said you kill 10 people and then eat breakfast, like it's nothing. And uh, so he had never wanted to do that until he'd seen uh, Taxi Driver and realized, like, you can do a movie that kind of uh, contends with the violence where it doesn't, it doesn't make light of it or, or, or anything like that but still be an entertaining movie that you want to watch. So that was a big influence. And then, the, and the other big influence was the book, the shootist. And he said that, uh, reading the book, just the darkness of it, uh, really influenced him. And, uh, David Webb Peebles, he said that he was not a fan of like John Ford Westerns. He's not really a fan of the classic Westerns. He said he liked some Howard Hawks stuff. And I know he was a fan of the gunfighter with Gregory Peck. Um, but he said he really liked revisionist westerns, and I know that that Cole Pepper Cattle Company was something that influenced him. Uh, he said he really loved the Great Northfield Minnesota Raid. That's one of his favorites. He called it a masterpiece. Um, and uh, he's never mentioned it, but uh, Will Penny must have been a an influence on him. I don't know if you've ever seen that, the Charlton Heston. I've not. No, no. 
Oh, it's 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 worth seeing. It's a really realistic, downbeat uh, uh, western that kind of is similar to this, and it's late sixties, and it, it just kind of throws all the cliches out uh, regarding westerns. And obviously, the character of Will Money, his name is obviously a play on Will Penny, and and Will Money's children are named Will and Penny. So, gotcha. <laughs> so. so so that was obviously a nod there, but it is very similar to the shootist thematically. Um, the idea that it's hard to kill someone because uh, in the shootist books says, you know, the thing about a gunfight, yeah, it's not being fast, it's being deliberate, it's taking your time and your willingness to do it. He said most men, when they're gonna you shoot somebody, they hesitate, and yeah, he they says, blink. I don't. You know, yeah, he says, I won't and I don't. And so and that's basically I mean, that scene with Gene Hackman going all, all, all over it is basically you're right straight out of the shootist um, when he's when he's uh, teaching Gillum how to be a gunfighter. But there's other thematic things. Obviously, an aging gunfighter is a very similar theme. Um, I know he said that the genesis of the idea was having this killer who thinks he's dying and then those scenes in unforgiven after he's been beaten and he's, and he's got the fever and he's talking about seeing like demons and undead and he's, yeah, he's really haunted by his past. Yeah. And that's very, and that's very similar to that, you know, that line, you know, where he says, I'm an old man afraid of the dark in the shootest. It's you, you see the thematic link there. Obviously you have the kid, the kid hotshot gunfighter who, who uh, you know wants to prove himself and all of that? That's that's a holdover, um, and uh, yeah, the uh, except you know in Unforgiven, it's kind of the ending of the movie, The Shootist, <laughs> where he decides to throw the gun away. Um, uh, but other things that are even a little bit more subtle, like so in the book, The Shootist, the queen has just died. And in Unforgiven, you have like the uh, Garfield's just been shot. And that's kind of a theme uh, throughout it. You have the dime novelist who's trying to, you know, who's latching onto these gunfighters. And you know, so you have you have that character and he's and I don't know the first Western to have that dime novelist archetype. It might be the left handed gun. So first that comes to mind, but that's clearly a holdover. And one of the other things that I think is a holdover is, is, um, in the book, the shootist, uh, the character of Cobb, who's in the, in the final gunfight is this young kid who, uh, gets drunk, goes to a whorehouse, can't get it up. Cause he's got, you know, whiskey dick. <laughs> and because of that, because of his sexual inadequacy, he decides to take it out on fuck the up yeah. prostitute, and he rapes her with a gun barrel, and it gets and it's just it's pretty nasty. It talks about the sight tearing her vulva, and it's just like ugh, which is obviously not in the John Wayne movie, but clearly that seems like the impetus for the scene where it, 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 the whole point of Unforgiven or the the whole yeah she lasted a small dick, and he's like she didn't yeah. <laughs> she didn't know no better. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> The way Francis Fisher delivers that line, I mean, Francis Fisher, who yeah. 
uh, must be said Clint Eastwood was boning at the time of this movie and had gotten her yeah. pregnant. And they were together like six years, but she's one of the best hookers in all of Western history by far because she just leans into all of it. But her accent and her frank, candid way of describing things, but the way she describes how this uh, confusion got started is just a, a, yeah. in spite of ha- the horror of what, what we've just seen in terms of the violence just Francis Fisher make, makes me laugh like hell with every line reading yeah yeah she's seen he had a teensy pecker and gave a giggle yeah um, but <laughs> but uh, um, so you definitely see the DNA of the shootist the, the book and the tone of it and everything and that's the thing is, is if the shootist was made with the tone of Unforgiven, that would definitely be a more uh, accurate, uh, uh, you know, adaptation. Yeah, it's of the a book. shame, like, you can't, like, merge the two movies together. Like, take the shootest book, or and then the, yeah, the Unforgiven aesthetics and, and approach, and just kind of, like, somehow form a, a hybrid, but I guess we can in our imagination. Yeah, and so have you ever read this the the screenplay of Unforgiven? I read a few scenes that you sent me, and obviously, oh. yeah, it's a it's very different. And I mean, obviously, it, they did a great job of adapting it, but I, I feel like they did clean it up a little bit. Like some of the dialogue is a little more profane, and some of that profanity is in the final movie. But once again, they probably wouldn't have won all these Oscars if they had been completely, totally faithful to the tone of the script. Yeah, yeah. And so, sometimes it's an improvement. So like, you know, at the end where it's like, deserves got nothing to do with it in the script. It's like deserve don't mean shit. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Deserves got nothing to do with it. But I mean, it's one of the best, one of the best lines yeah. like in Western history. But, but, but yeah, when you do, and that's the thing, like, Clint Eastwood was unfussy with the way he adapted it. He was very close to it. He deleted one scene uh, at the end. Um, which is a really strange scene in the script. I don't know how it would have played in the movie. I think he made the right decision. After Will Money kills everybody, he goes back and there's a scene with his kids and he's talking to them and he's like, and it's just, it's a weird scene. Like, did you kill people? And he's like, no. And it's just, I don't know what, (laughs) it was strange. But, but But the script, the way it's written, it's very, it's the, the, the prose is very, it's very interesting. It's well worth reading. Well, also, uh, most screenplays are some of the finest examples of awful writing you could ever hope to come across, where like the screenplays almost feel like they're doing everything in their power to butcher the king's English. Whereas, And also, a lot of times people will say, like Redis and Ellis on his podcast recently was talking about how screenplay, you, don't, you shouldn't actually try to write it that well because it's a blueprint for something that's going to happen, but they're not actually going to film your screenplay. So don't try to write really wonderful prose when you're describing a scene because it's just it's wasted energy and wasted effort however the the screenplay for Unforgiven is incredibly stylish it has a lot more craft and a lot more artistry than your average script so I, I was very impressed by just how much effort he put into it yeah it's it's well worth reading and the and the and the uh, one of the differences with the with the screenplay in the movie is that the screenplay is very baroque it I mean, just the idea of calling it the cut whore killings gives you the idea that it's 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 more grotesque in many ways. Uh, certain details that that Clint Eastwood didn't carry over are like the ideas like so William Money is known as three fingered Bill. He's got three fingers on one of his hands. The Schofield kid is missing his front teeth. Um, they describes the pockmarked faces of people from, from having the 
the pox. It's a and, 70s Western, baby. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and so and that's pretty much all that's taken out, which I get because you don't necessarily, especially in that time, want to have to worry about having a guy with, you know, missing mm. his fingers or missing teeth or that type of stuff. One of the things I don't understand is why he kept the guy who's missing his arm. Because it's thematically in the script, there's just all these people that are just de- deformed or or crippled in certain ways or whatever. But why did he carry over the guy missing his arm? You clearly see he's got his arm tucked in his shirt. Yeah, it's one of the things where I, I've never understood why you would ever include that in a movie unless you have an actor who's actually missing an arm. Like It, it always looks fucking awful and so yeah. I, it's one of the things where suspension of disbelief becomes a real problem like when you watch all these like old hong kong movies like one-armed swordsman it's like yeah but you can see that he's still got his arm so yeah I, I always i always hate that trick when they just put the arm behind their back it looks terrible yeah and they've changed other things too like the scope kid instead of he shoots a canteen in the movie and in the in the in the screenplay he's shooting turtles and there's just certain things and and like you said the the dialogue is not as profane in the movie um, I know that David Webb people said like, cause the script is pretty, it's pretty authentic, uh, to the, to the period, to a degree, there's certain errors, but overall, but it is funny cause he said like the way he learned to write Western dialogue was that he just, uh, read, uh, true grit. So <laughs> he was Which just is a damn good book. I mean, I would say yeah. like as much, well, shoot is very different, but True Grit, I read that maybe two years ago when we did an episode about it and we talked about the two different versions of the movie. And yeah, that's also one of the most enjoyable books I've ever read. But it, it's it just an absolute masterpiece. Yeah, and and yeah, uh, Charles Portis's Western dialogue is is the best, you know. Um, but uh, um, so, uh, yeah, there's just a lot of that stuff and and – and, you know, I know that Francis Ford Coppola uh, had optioned the rights to the movie for a time. But after he did One for the Heart, which was, you know, the huge bomb, yep. I think he decided maybe a Western is not going to be the thing to get. <laughs> you know, it might not be the box office. <laughs> no, it's like, let me, let me take a tra- crack at Dracula instead and, and get back on top. Yeah, but uh, – and he was going to have John Malkovich star in it, which is interesting. Uh, and, and also with The Shootist, it was originally going to star – uh, George C. Scott. So the, those would be very different, different movies. Very weird. I would love to see Coppola's version. I, I would just love to see a Coppola Western, but his not version now, was, but maybe Coppola, the Coppola who made Apocalypse Now, he probably would have made an interesting Western, but the, the Coppola who made maybe like Jack less. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> oh, I, well, yeah, I agree with that. But, but, uh, but I feel that I mean, I don't think that the movie Unforgiven doesn't have atmosphere. There's so you know, it's very. Well, there's some very, scenes where it's really imbued with atmosphere, like the scene where they're about to get the news that Ned is dead. They're waiting for the money, and they're by that tree. And I think that's some of the most. It's almost like the character William Money doesn't even really become William Money until that scene when he says, "We all got it coming," which I think is one of the best red lines in. Clint Eastwood's career and the way they staged it and the emotion and the winds howling and the girl rides up and she's crying because the guys don't even know that Ned's dead yet. Like the way that scene unfolds and he's like, what the hell are you talking about? Like Ned isn't dead. And he he almost can't even like digest it. And the way you just kind of casually start swigging on the bottle of whiskey. That scene is beautifully staged and has an incredible atmosphere. And you can really start to feel like the, the ominous, kind of you rumblings start, yeah, of the storm really, to come. 
Yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. That is a great one of the one of the best Clint Eastwood scenes. Not even necessarily of the movies he's directed, but just one of those. It's just things. one of the great Clint Eastwood scenes, without a doubt. Now, and and that is also why it's a fascinating movie and fascinating script because it has this reputation as like, oh, it's this, it's the anti-violence Western and it's the first one to really explore that, which is bullshit. But, but at the same time, it gives you, if you want to see via, if you want a fucking badass violence, it gives you that. So, yeah. <laughs> it, so it's not, I mean, it, it, it's almost you just, like... You are a cowardly son of a bitch. You just shot an unarmed man. It's like, well, he ought to, should have armed himself if he's going to decorate a saloon with my friend. I mean, it is fucking ruthless. I think I think that's one of the reasons why the script is so good. Because I honestly don't know where... It, I, I mean, I know what David Webb Peoples has said about violence in movies and stuff, but he still gives you a saloon massacre he's still or Richard like, Harris gets his oh, ass kicked Richard Harris gets beaten within an inch of his life and he, when they're finally like they let him go things like you're all a bunch of bloody savages I mean there are some dark scenes and I think the threat of violence is in every single scene in which Gene Hackman appears so the movie's imbued with atmosphere and violence it's just not a straight up like 80s action movie but I mean, it, I feel like Westerns are pretty lousy when they're trying to be like an, an 80s action movie. So I feel like all the action that I want, it's there. Yeah. And so that's and I think that's the difference, because like if you do compare it with something like Dirty Little Billy or one of the downer 70s Westerns that doesn't give you necessarily the, the climax that you want, I don't necessarily think people would still be talking about it. But I also kind of want to call bullshit on the idea that it's this big anti-violence Western. It's com- it's morally complex and it's brilliantly written. Um, and the thing is, it's it it's it's kind of like a long form version of that. It's I mean it's kind of, it's a Western trope or an action movie trope of just this idea of like. And it's and it's one of the things that it happens in the movie itself is you know the the cowboys on the train are talking shit to Richard Harris's character. And then one of the guys says, you don't know who this is English Bob. And he's like, Oh boy, you know, and that happens in a lot of Westerns. And, and that's kind of almost the whole, uh, the whole plot of this movie, which is just, people don't know who the fuck this guy is. <laughs> and he's going to, and it, and, and it, it just kind of, Especially the women who have hired him and that girl when she starts weeping about all the stories Ned tells about yeah. all the things that William Money has done in the past. And this girl, she's just sobbing as she recounts all the things that she's learned about him. Or, or, yeah, or it's like that kind of a, almost like a martial arts movie trope of like the guy who wants to be peaceful and people fuck with him too much. And eventually he has to throw down and it's always much more satisfying than if he was just kicking their asses immediately. And the, I mean, that's what the movie is doing. So I don't, I don't necessarily buy the idea that it's some anti violence movie. Yeah, I think I, a lot's been said about this movie about people who don't really care about Westerns and that's fine. I mean, the fact that they saw it and gave it awards is awesome because it's good for the Western genre, but I feel like Western fans dig a little deeper into this movie and, and enjoy and enjoy it in different ways. Well, and, and the quality is just, in the in the way it's written, in the characters, and in most of the actors, um, you know the I mean, yeah, Clint Eastwood, Morgan Freeman is great in it. Gene Hackman is amazing, and he is in many ways the most interesting character. And 
one of the things about the movie is that you could shift it just slightly and the Gene Hackman character mm. might be the hero, you know? And um, so, uh, you know, that, 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 that also makes it more interesting than a lot of these types yeah, of I mean, films. I mean, Clint and Morgan, they're... They're assassins, like they're aging assassins. But like you know, it's like shit, man. We ain't bad no men, men anymore. We're farmers. But they've spent much of their life <laughs> just being ruthless sons of bitches. You know, totally shit faced doing horrible things. I mean, he's like, yeah, he's like, I killed women and children. I killed everything that walked or crawled at one time or another. And I'm here to kill you, little Bill, for what you did to Ned. I mean, it's it's such a beautifully written line. But you realize, oh, this guy's got decades of atrocities <laughs> under his belt. So maybe maybe Gene Hackman's character is the hero of the story, but he's not the central character. He's just, uh, he's the antagonist, but it's hard to say who's the villain or who's the hero. He's, he's sadistic and he goes over the line, but how many times do we watch movies where some kind of lawman or character goes over the line and you know what I mean? Tortures a person or, you know, like we always kind of cheer that. So you could shift it very easily uh, and make and he's trying to avoid bloodshed. It's like, haven't you had enough bloodshed for one day? I mean, it's just, he is at various times trying to reduce the level of violence in the town. Obviously, he's also, I mean, what he does to Ned, I mean, he whips him to death and gets all these horrible confessions out of him. And then what they do to him by placing him in front of the storefront, I mean, that is as fucked up as you can think of. It's basically... Like, and that's what they would really do at that time. You will see yeah. a lot of photos of people propped up and dead outlaws propped up in front of place. But the fact that Morgan Freeman's character is black, like they never really dive into race in this really at all, apart from when Morgan Freeman makes a reference to the fact that his Indian wife isn't necessarily like the most cheerful individual, but you can't escape the history of like public lynching lynchings in America. when you're, when you see a shot of Morgan Freeman with a sign over him in front and of this saloon, it, it just brings so much history like roaring back. Well, that is one of the things that I do want to kind of talk about because because the movie, the script and the movie, they are very they they basically they wear it on their sleeve that they're trying to tell you this is what the West was like, you know, um, and most revisionist westerns try to do that too. My and so my issue is that there are these things about it that are not correct historically which i know most people don't give a shit it's a movie that that's fine but when a movie dedicates so much time to telling you no that's not how a gunfight was no this is how the west was i feel that there's a certain you have to get certain things correct and so in the script the the character of ned is not black interesting yeah he is not and and the thing is obviously morgan freeman is great in it but there's, there, there's an aspect of it that I think is, uh, in my mind, not great because it gives a, it gives a, a wrong idea of the West or our historical past, which is that uh, there was a, there was a lot more black people than is represented in westerns. Um, so that, so in that aspect, that's cool. The thing is. Morgan Freeman's doing stuff in this movie that just would not be allowed. He would not be allowed to go into a saloon. He would not be allowed to sleep with white prostitutes, you know, and also just the idea that, so, you know, when they're, when they're, when they're, um, uh, after they kill Davy, 
and they're escaping and they're describing them. They were on this type of horse and da 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 da. Someone would say he was black. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. And then just and so so one, I think it tips the scales and makes little Bill look more villainous than the script did because yeah, you can't get away from this idea of him whipping this black guy and beating him to death. But it's also has just this weird sort of thing where it's like, you're not actually addressing the history of what someone would. And, you know, if I'm watching El Condor or something, uh, you know, kind of a B movie or something, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously not going to care about that. But when you well, have you're a, watching Oscar bait, then you expect them to address it. Well, you, yeah, a movie that is just seems to wear on its sleeve, this idea of this is what the West is like. And it's a refutation to all these other things. It's like, you can't just sort of give this – you can't show the West as some kind of post-racial society. It just it – just, it just in many ways, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. And obviously, there are anomalies and so fair enough. But it's always kind of a thing that like you're, 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 you're kind of giving the white people of the time a little well, bit too much credit. <laughs> contrast that with like a book like Lonesome Dove where the character Dietz, who's the one black character in there – he is an intimate part of this brotherhood of guys who used to be the Texas Rangers, but the mo the book never tries to get around that. Like even one of the big things that Woodrow calls to reckon with, he's given Dietz this position of enormous responsibility of scouting ahead and finding them clean water every night. But there's one scene where he's like, oh man, I've just put Dietz in a position where he has authority over and can give orders to a white man. And he has to figure like, a really interesting, kind of clever diplomatic solution for because Dietz is very reliable but the book does not try to shy away from the fact that you're you're dealing with a story that takes place on a few years after the civil war and so I, I like the handling of race in Lonesome Dove while at the same time they still make Dietz one of the biggest badasses in the book well even in that book like the character of Gus who's the most likable character right at the beginning when they're talking about Lincoln freeing the slaves or whatever he specifically tells Dietz like they weren't Americans. They were Africans. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, so even the most sympathetic character that everyone loves is still like he's even though this is his friend and he'll like let him drink. He, he'll beat up a bartender so he can drink in the bar and all that stuff. He's there's still that divide there. And that yeah. is, although to be fair, he also says that Woodrow Cult's not American, that he's Scottish. He's like, I ain't Scottish. <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, yeah, he, he lived in Scotland for like a month. And so as far as Gus is concerned, Call is Scottish for the rest of his life. <laughs> yeah. So that aspect of it, there's other things too that I just feel like I mean, no one cares about this shit outside of me and some like Western nerds, but it's like the, the 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 look of the town is very cool. Like I, I he built that. I guess had the whole set built, and it just does, it doesn't look like a Western movie set. And I like that. Costumes I don't like. They all look like they've been shopping at Mervin's. Uh, you know, um, uh, Ned looks like he looks like Alan Grant from Jurassic Park. Like the the West is like a it's a Victorian time. So they, Although when they I just would have, love to get one of Clint Eastwood's hats. I, I love Clint Eastwood's hat in this. It just, <laughs> I, I don't know what era it's from or where it'd be appropriate, but I just think it looks fucking cool. I think his hat's okay. Some of the costumes are all right, but they're just wear they're just wearing like regular like jeans and these shirt like just regular. It just they don't look they don't and most of the people are dressed like cowboys in the town, but it's like people don't get is like cowboys were a subculture people in a town wanted to be walking around dressed like cowboys with yeah, scarves. cowboys were like garbage men like, yeah, uh, yeah. Like, <laughs> like landscapers or something yeah they're not 
you know, so, so, you know, and I know it's nitpicky, but for a movie that is lauded as this most authentic kind of thing, you got Gene Hackman and he's wearing this coat with snap buttons. And so it's just, he, it's one more of those things where he just kind of cut corners and the main cast is great, but then the little roles are weird. You got cowboys and one guy looks like he's about 60 years old. They got this big fat guy on this train who's supposed to be a cowboy. And you're like, what? what kind of work is this guy doing? You know, <laughs> you know, so it's like you see where he's cutting corners in, in some of the smaller roles and some of the, some of the details. I don't think Eastwood is a great like detail oriented director. And he's too busy, you know, s- spilling his seed around and having all these uh, <laughs> unofficial children. I mean, he's got something like, like, like seven, like, like not undocumented children, but like oh, yeah. uh, he's but he's had he's had so many kids <laughs> with like random mistresses and girlfriends and that sort of thing, and it's like it just he and he kept having kids like his late sixties, but it sounds like yeah, there's a, a lot of fucking going on in Clint Eastwood's private life, and yeah, and Francis Fisher, she was front and center at, at this time in his life, but when it comes to how the film is dedicated to Sergio and Don, do you feel like you feel or do you feel like there's any overt influence or homage because while I love and admire the fact that he did dedicate this movie to two such wonderful filmmakers I don't feel any Leone in this movie no and I don't don't even know if I really even feel that much Don Siegel like it it feels like a Clint Eastwood movie for better or for worse I I don't feel the influence of Sergio and Don really at all yeah I mean I guess I would I think I feel the influence of Don Siegel in most of his work just because Don Siegel was also, I think, known for... Like, play Misty for me, I feel the influence of Don Siegel much more than Unforgiven. <laughs> That's true. But just that, like, uh, Don Siegel's sort of no-nonsense approach, you know? Meat and potatoes kind of, like, direct... You know, I don't think that, uh, at least from my understanding, that Don Siegel was, like, a you know, uh, a, a guy who did a lot of takes or, you know, he, yeah, very, so, very efficient, very pragmatic. And, yeah. and he's like I, the old line I always attribute, or that's always attributed to Clint Eastwood. He's like, there are two kinds of filmmakers when they're setting up a shot of a bridge and something's not going right. The practical filmmaker will move the camera. Other filmmakers will try to move the bridge and they're guys, they're both guys who would try to move the camera first, not the bridge. Yeah. And I think, and Leone is the guy who would move the bridge, you know, yeah, probably. <laughs> or, or if you accidentally blow up a bridge, he'd be the guy that you'd have to rebuild it. Like, like happened in the good, bad and the ugly. So I don't see much of Leone in it. No. Uh, I think, I guess maybe near the end, the, the rain and, and the, you know, his, the badass kind of, uh, end gunfight maybe has a bit of Leone there, but I don't think that, I mean, I think one of the reasons that he stopped working with Leone is that he wasn't satisfied with the the way he did movies, the way he directed, the way how long it would take, or you know. So I I almost feel that I'm. I mean, I know that of course Eastwood has respect and loves Leone and loves the movies he did with him, but I almost feel that Leone kind of told him what he showed him what he didn't want to be as a director, you know. So. Um, but uh, yeah, so I don't see it there. Fair enough. Well, I'm trying to think, are there any final thoughts in this? Because I think I've gotten the most of it. I guess what I really love most though is just when he finally does confront everybody in the saloon at the end. You do. It, it almost feels like take all the darkness from Outlaw Josie Wales or High Plains Drifter, all these like these rough characters he's played. 
kind of stir them all into one brew. It's almost like he's saying like, all right, here it is. All, all, all the bad men that I've played, this is their moment. Like this is the, almost like this like epiphany where you finally get to see me as rugged as I can possibly get. And once I've got it out of my system, like you're never going to see this again. I mean, people talk about Gran Torino and get off my lawn and that sort of thing, but I almost feel like he's t- giving us one final deep dive into this persona before he finally puts it to bed. So I, I find that scene enormously satisfying. What's interesting is how that that's the one scene from the 90s that makes it into Scorsese's documentary, A Personal Journey Through American Filmmaking with Martin Scorsese. It's mostly like 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, all the films that he grew up on. But then at a certain point, we talking about the West. He throws in the scene from Unforgiven. I was like, whoa, Scorsese in the mid-90s choosing to tip his hat to Clint Eastwood, including the scene when he's talking about all these other films from decades prior. And I always found that to be, I guess, a, a little nod of respect from one filmmaker to another. Yeah, and, so, and I, you know, I've been kind of hard on it. And, and, and it's more because of its, of its reputation, because it is a great, I mean, it's, it is still a great movie. It's still a great Western. The script is one of the best. Um, that's what really separates it from most of the revisionist uh, Westerns of the 70s. Um, and Clint Eastwood does a really good job with it. But I do think that there are deficiencies there that, I, that people either are not aware of or they overlook. So I don't want to be too hard on the movie. Because um, once again, like when the the opening and closing bits, when you have that shot, the beautiful shot at sunset with him, like you know, digging the grave, and you've got the text going along and the music, that's wonderful, bold, masterful storytelling there, and not a lot of directors are, are capable of that. So yeah, I, I I love Unforgiven. I just don't place it in the pantheon of the essentials. It's not on the level of the Wild Bunch. It's not on the level of the Searchers. But not a lot of movies are. Period. It's like when people say like, oh, movies like everyone's making fun of Joker for not being as good as Taxi Driver. Like, yeah, of course it's not as good as Taxi Driver because almost no movies are as good as Taxi Driver. Like, it's, it's like you can still enjoy a movie even if it's not as good as Taxi Driver. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and and that would be the other thing too. Is just this the you know back to this idea of it's a, the the anti violence thing or and and basically the theme of the movie is that it's hard to kill somebody and when you do it, it's a hell of a thing killing a man. Yeah, you kind of put your soul at hazard and and um, and it's well told. That's not necessarily a unique theme. I almost think that the uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, of course, I'm always going to mention that one, but I think that approach to violence, which is that everyone is desensitized to it, where they become kind of inoculated to even the weight of violence, is a much more interesting uh, uh, idea, more complex thematic idea, because then it also plays into even the violence in movies kind of you're, you, you, you know, becoming desensitized to it. So I think Peckinpah has way more complexity and depth in his approach to violence. And I think that for some people, maybe that doesn't come off. And so, you know, then you watch a movie that is out, you know, basically stating it up front, you know, but, <laughs> and so it's like, but the thing that keeps it from, becoming too much of a preachy sort of thing is like I said before that it still delivers on one, you know, it still delivers on that, this idea, this kind of bloodlust that the audience has when they see a Clint Eastwood movie. So, uh, it's, it's an interesting movie to grapple with. I just don't think that it, 
uh, I think that it should be respected more on how well it's told as opposed to this idea that it really broke any ground. So I think that's that's totally fair. Well, what are we going to do next for our next big Western roundup? Because I love doing these, but I really love the compare and contrast between a book and a movie. So maybe whether it's Shane or whatever, like at some point we might have to find another great book with another great movie adaptation to sink our teeth into. But I, it's almost like now I don't even do to- like episodes about Westerns unless they feature you. Cause I know oh. you're going to you just go, go all out. But anytime you want to talk about Westerns of any kind, I, I, I'm always game. Cause I always end up seeing something or reading something that I've never encountered before. And it just increases and deepens my appreciation for the history of the Western genre. Yeah. I mean, we can, uh, like I think I mentioned to you before, we could kind of touch upon some of those post Peck and Paw, like the Peck and Paw kind of clones from the 70s. Uh, that might be interesting to to kind of see where they w- take stuff from him. Where they're there's deficient. also another major director who's never been touched by this podcast, and he made uh, a lot of good ones. Anthony Mann. He's got a lot of good westerns to his name, and he is virgin territory for Wrong Real. And there are not a lot of filmmakers where I can say they're virgin territory. Oh, well, yeah, that actually might be a good one to do. Uh, I think I think a uh, western filmmaker who kind of gets underrated, because he did a lot of crap, but he did so many westerns, Burt Kennedy, uh, whether he wrote them or directed them. So he wrote a lot of the Bedeker movies, uh, but then he you know, directed some himself, and some are better than others, but he's he's an interesting guy that I think is sort of an unsung figure uh, uh, in the in the genre. Uh, and then, of course, if we wanted to do another historical one, we could talk about Wild Bill. He has some interesting movies made about him, and uh, so you know, there's other there's other possibilities. You just let me know whatever strikes strikes you. Well, I, w- I won't be satisfied until we've tackled all the good ones. And of course, we could just keep it simple one day and just say, "Hey, let's 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 do the Howard Hawks westerns. Let's let's do El Dorado, Rio Libo, Rio Bravo, and, El- and Red River." And just just because he only he only did a couple, so it'd be very easy just to rip right through it. So yeah, there's all these interesting stones to look under and explore in the history of this genre. Oh yeah, that'd be good. Or or even like uh, some of the stars that aren't necessarily known for westerns, but made yeah, like Gregory few- Peck and the Gunfighter. We mentioned that earlier, but there there these great little uh, there there's always obscure gems that are left to be discovered. Or Burt Lancaster, he's got he's got some interesting ones in his yeah, uh, the Professionals, film. baby, Richard Brooks. Oh, Professionals, yeah, Veracruz, uh, um, Lawman. That's an interesting one. Michael Winner one. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. I have not seen Lawman. No. That one is thematically kind of similar. It has that same ambiguity that uh, Unforgiven has. It's just not as good of a movie, but it uh, it's really it's a weird uh, it's a weird uh, Michael Winner movie where the villains aren't that bad and maybe the hero is an asshole. So nice, very cool. It's, it's worth seeing. Well, where can people find you in the interim if they want to talk more about westerns, your art, whatever the case might be? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook under David Lambert Art. Uh, and so I post semi-regularly. Uh, I used to try to post like twice a week, but now it's more down to once a week or every other week uh, just because of my situation at the moment. But uh, yeah, if you want to see uh, you know, a lot of naked ladies and <laughs> animal <laughs> weird things... <laughs> 
uh, then, uh, yeah, you can check it out. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I can't thank you enough for making the pitch. I really enjoyed the preparation for this. And, yeah, I guess thank you for everybody who's listened and made it two and a half hours into this topic. Oh. <laughs> and uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Definitely check out the flicks. Definitely check out the shootest. You, you will not regret it. But if you need some more content before our next Western episode, you can always go to my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock, where I'm always ranting and raving about a variety of topics. But please remember to subscribe to the podcast. So leave us a rating review on iTunes. It's very helpful. And buy some Wrong Real gear in the link that's in the show notes if you're feeling so inclined. But thanks again for listening. We really appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.